gentlemen, welcome to another episode of The Voice of Neuro World Discussion with Agent Smith. Today is March the 29th, 2020, and we're trying to figure out what the heck is going on in the world. Joined by Agent Smith, how are you doing, my buddy? Doing all right. We're both surviving, maybe a cough or a sneeze here or there, trying to distance ourselves socially and just use the internet for interaction. Yep. Yeah. Very and, discombobulating uh, for us. <laughs> yeah, but I am happy to report that no viewers so far have been infected with corona from listening to the podcast <laughs> or watching the stream. So this is safe to browse. If you're really concerned, you could wash your hands before you touch your keyboard and mouse just in case. You might also wash off your monitor uh, if you want to be extra super safe. But aside from that, you should be fine. Well, I'm glad to know that we're not causing health issues for people. Yeah. Many broadcasters were concerned about that. <laughs> well, we did bring back the viewer geolocation thing. A little add-on we had in the stream that's pretty cool to show the representation of viewers from different countries around the world. Some of the no-brainer ones based on the time that I'm streaming are US, Canada, and Australia. But there's some other cool ones that can look at welcome everybody tuning in really cool having an international audience here tonight as always so we could knock out the corona update because i know that's what all the town is fussing about is there anything that's fussed about that you found noteworthy this week i don't know about fussed about but the u.s did finally pass its stimulus bill if you want to call it that and they passed a bill to try to mitigate the economic damage from the virus and uh, coincidentally, the UK did as well. So those were the two big things that were kind of on my radar there as far as uh, COVID-19 news. A couple other things too, but those were the main ones. So we can get into that if you like. Sure. I did have a viewer a couple of days ago saying that we were going to get $2 trillion from the stimulus. And I was thinking, wow, that sounds like a magic money portal that was just opened. <laughs> <It's> <laughs> Why didn't we do that before? Yeah, Would you like to get $2 trillion? Oh, sure. There you go. Yeah, it's uh, not all of it is actually going to be transferred, though. The transfer payment is a subset within the bill. So the bill pays for multiple things. And uh, I haven't read the details about some of the other stuff, but I do have a breakdown of what the transfers are going to look like, which is the thing that people are most interested in. So to just briefly outline how the transfers are going to work, Taxpayers that uh, make $75,000 and below will receive a check for $1,200. Married couples making $150,000 and below will receive $2,400. Everyone earning underneath uh, the caps that I just mentioned, they're also going to receive $500 per child. So if you're uh, just an individual taxpayer and you make, I don't know, $50,000, let's say, you should get a check for $1,200 and $500 for every child you have. Now, the amount is going to fall for those who have incomes above those caps. And so uh, it's going to fall incrementally by $5 for every $100 in income over the cap. And that's that applies to both the check that's being distributed as well as the child credit. And I think it's the absolute cap is 99000 for individual taxpayers, so there's nothing for anybody above that, but between $75,000 to $99,000 in income. 
that's bandwidth within which the uh, amount of the check is going to fall by $5 for every $100. Earnings are being estimated according to adjusted gross income as reported in uh, tax filings. So as you can imagine, the IRS is handling uh, the distribution of the checks and whatnot, and uh, they have the because they have the records that they're using to establish who has what income. And from what I read, they're either going to use 2018 or 2019 returns, depending on what's available, since not everybody files returns every year. In some cases, they don't even if they're supposed to. I seem to recall Michael doing that a couple of times. Yes. But there's also a lot of people who just have incomes that are so low that they don't have to report, which I have done a couple of times, which is not smart, by the way. You should still file, even if you uh, even if you don't have to, even if you're not paying anything or getting anything back. And uh, you're learning why right now, because that information is, can be used by policymakers to distribute uh, funds like this as part of a program like this. It's also important for credit purposes, you know, credit agencies look at that uh, and uh, whoever you're trying to get a loan from, you know, they might require that you uh, do that or different institutions. I think some government jobs require that as well, that you submit past tax returns. So if you don't have any, that can be a problem. Anyway, it's random tangent. File your taxes, people. Agent Smith. <laughs> yeah. So approximately 140 million households will receive a direct rebate. That's estimated by a think tank called the Tax Foundation. That was referenced in the article I read about this. The money will not count as taxable income, so you're not going to be taxed for it, so you don't have to worry about that. Uh, those receiving Social Security benefits will also be eligible, uh, so it's not like you're not going to be able to get payments if you're already getting transfer payments in the form of Social Security. They will stack, so to speak. And green card holders will be eligible also. So it's not just citizens. It's also uh, those who hold green cards who will be eligible for the program and should hypothetically get a check. From what I read, they're just going to, uh, they're going to try to do uh, direct transfers into bank accounts since that's information that uh, you can make available in your tax filing. You can just ask for any payments or receipts to go directly into your bank account and you can provide that information. So from what I read, the IRS was going to try to do it that way to get the money to people just directly transferring it into people's bank accounts. But of course, not everybody does that. So I assume that uh, some checks will just have to be mailed. So that's a brief outline of the transfers. Again, to reiterate what we were talking about uh, last week, these transfers are not really meant to stimulate the economy because that's not going to happen. You know, people aren't going to take their check and probably anyway, people are not going to take their check and just go out and start buying stuff or what have you. And it's only $1,200. It's not like it's a recurring. To be fair, some people will. Some people will. Some yeah. people will take the 1200 and they'll be like, let's party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not meant to do that. That's the point. It's it's not meant to stimulate economic activity in that way. Rather, it's just meant to tide people over who have lost their jobs, who lack income, and have certain fixed costs that they can't get around but can't pay for because they don't have the income with which they would normally do so. So this is not about boosting the economy. It's about mitigating damage. It's just about, it's about helping people stay afloat and helping businesses stay afloat. 
Although in, with the businesses, they're not helped much by the transfer. The businesses are helped by other aspects of the program and other programs that are being implemented. So you could say then that the transfer program is the part of the uh, government response to the mitigating the economic impact of COVID-19 that deals specifically with the common people, you know, the individuals in the United States. So just to briefly touch on some of the other aspects of the bill, and these are things that I still need to read on to, to read about in order to get details on. I'm a little light this week on information because I had to uh, work on a proofreading job, so I didn't have as much time for some of the other reading and whatnot. But from what I read, from what limited reading I did do, uh, the other parts of the bill that was passed included a boost to unemployment benefits. Um, that's pretty intuitive. You know, uh, people losing their jobs need money, so... They can go on unemployment. They can get unemployment benefits, and they should get more now. Let's see. There's also going to be financing for affected industries. So this is the uh, bailout that's been controversial. You know, people have been critical that critical of industries that have been asking for uh, government funds to help tide them over. The airlines are the principal case in point. They've been the ones in the news the most. But I suspect that there's also going to be others. Again, I haven't read enough about it to know which, so I can't give you a list off here. But that is something that is in the bill, that there is going to be some uh, subsidies of some kind uh, being given to industries that have been the most affected. Airlines, case in point, but probably also, I would guess, what would you call it? The hospitality industry, you know, hotels, travel firms, other than our airlines anyway. And uh, these kinds of industries that have really taken the biggest hit are probably the ones that they're funneling money into. That's a quick snapshot of the uh, U.S. bill here. To talk about the U.K. plan, which was passed, this plan encompasses about 350 billion pounds, which is a pretty considerable amount for the uh, U.K. But from, from what I read, it doesn't have transfers, or at least in the article I read about it, they didn't talk about transfers. Uh, what I read uh, suggested that it, the bill plan, rather, was mostly focused on giving guarantees. Uh, that is to say, guaranteeing on the part of the government, the government guaranteeing loans to firms. Now, there are certain qualifications here. Uh, the loans will only qualify for the government guarantee if they meet certain conditions. And the conditions are as follows. The borrower has to have a turnover of, of no more than 45 million pounds. So anything above that is no go. The borrower can't get a loan without the guarantee. Oh, wait, what is this? Oh, so one of the qualifications is that uh, borrowers cannot have gotten the loan anyway. Uh, in other words, they need the guarantee by the government in order to get access to the loan. If you're a bank, you're not really in a lending mood right now since nobody's making any money. So the guarantee ensures that uh, you have a higher degree of boosts your confidence that your loan will actually be paid back at some point. And uh, so that in that improves confidence and in by extension, it's meant to uh, increase the amount of lending that banks are doing so as to make more funds and liquidity available to uh, firms so that they have the money they need to pay the fixed costs that they're still incurring, even though they're not making any money. So the interesting thing here about this uh, caveat, you know, the requirement that only firms that can't have gotten the loan anyway without the uh, guarantee will be able to actually get it. The issue there is that there's not really anything in the plan to actually check that. And really, it's not something that you probably could even check anyway. I mean, how would you know what the bank would have done if not for the guarantee? That's not really entirely clear. What, what, what I read is that the uh, British government doesn't really care. <laughs> they're, 
basically just accepting that there's probably going to be firms that uh, get this guarantee who technically shouldn't get it, but uh, they're being uh, relaxed on enforcing. They're probably going to be very relaxed in enforcing that so as to ensure, uh, so as to expedite rather the flow of funds uh, into the private sector. It would be more trouble than it was worth, than it would be worth, in other words, uh, to actually try to enforce that aspect. I think they had to include it, though, just for political reasons, basically. So they're not just shoveling money uh, out to firms that don't really need it. Let's see. So the next condition, loans must be, the loan that is given to uh, the business has to be a 12-month interest-free loan of up to 5 million pounds. So that is, uh, if you if the bank wants that loan to be guaranteed, that's the loan that they have to be giving to the counterparty. And then loans of over 250,000 pounds must be securitized or secured rather, must be secured by company assets. So that's just meant to give a little cover. You know, you can't just, uh, you have to have something, some kind of collateral that you can offer if you want to actually get that loan from the bank. So if all of these conditions are met, the British government is going to guarantee the loan. Maybe I should explain what guarantee means. To say uh, guarantee the loan, that means that if the loan is not repaid by the borrower, then whoever guarantees it is the one who's going to jump in and pay it on their behalf. So that's helpful for banks because if a loan isn't honored, uh, if the borrower does not pay back normally, that just means they lose a lot of money. And if they think that there's a high chance that they won't be paid back, then they're less likely to issue the loan in the first place. So a guarantee from a credible guarantor is a good way of uh, boosting lending because then banks will be more confident or at least will feel more secure that they will get their money back and so will lend more. That's sort of the logic behind uh, guaranteeing. Those of you who have uh, taken student loans would probably be familiar with the idea of cosigner. I think it is. I'm struggling to remember the term. I think that's accurate, but I'm a little shaky. But that's when somebody signs your loan with you and basically promises to pay it if you fail to. And so that's a way of the bank kind of covering their bases uh, by making it relatively more likely, boosting their confidence that they'll get paid back later. I think that happens pretty often for young adults who are doing stuff like getting their first apartment or first car and things like that, and they don't have any credit to base it off of. If their parent uh, co-signs with them, then that gives them a lot of confidence to mm -hmm. give them the loan or give them the lease or whatever. Yeah, yeah, that uh, little extra guarantee there kind of is what gets you over the edge. So that's what's happening here, basically. Now, that said, it's not a full guarantee. Uh, the government is only promising to guarantee 60% of the qualifying loans that would be made by banks. So even if banks go out and meet all of the conditions, all of the loans that they issue in this vein, only 60% of those will actually be guaranteed by the government. And even then, it's not a full guarantee. The government would only be guaranteeing 80% of the value of the loan. So this is not a full stop push by the British government to guarantee all loans that are meeting these conditions. It's uh, more of a limited guarantee. And I think they're doing that because there's just a limit to the resources they have available. You know, they want to encourage lending, but they only have so much money to work with. So a partial guarantee is uh, how they're doing that, how they're addressing that shortfall. So something else in the in the bill or the plan, sorry, something else in the plan is that the government is going to lend directly to firms. So in the previous aspect, the guarantee that I just talked about, that's an indirect subsidy 
because the government is not directly giving money to firms, but they are taking action, the guarantee that results in relatively more liquidity being made available for firms. But here, they're actually going to give money directly to firms. And what they're doing is that they're promising to buy an unlimited amount of short-term IOUs. And if you don't know what an IOU is, I know we've got some non-native English speakers. That's uh, sort of a colloquial term for owing somebody money. That's uh, IOU money, which is often turned into an acronym IOU. So this is uh, an IOU is obviously an informal promise to pay somebody back. So here the government is saying that they're going to accept informal promises to pay back in exchange uh, for significant loans. Now, there's a caveat here. They're only going to do this for companies that are investment grade. And what that means is that they have a very high credit rating. Uh, So if there's a high degree of confidence by credit rating agencies that uh, a given firm is likely to pay back their loans, then that firm will qualify uh, for this program. They will be able to, uh, in effect, get a loan from the government. From what I read, an unlimited amount... (laughs) I assume there must actually be some limit. I can't imagine them just giving out infinite money. So obviously there's going to be some kind of limit there. But if you do qualify, then you can do that. But there's a lot of firms that don't. So this is obviously another representation of the lack of resources here. I think, uh, I mean, politically, I guess it would be a bit difficult if you just gave out money to firms that are not credit worthy, because then you could argue, well, you're just throwing money away. Uh, But realistically, given the severity of the crisis, I suspect this is more a representation of the lack of resources. They would probably prefer to give out more money, but they have to draw the line somewhere. And so the heuristic here they're using is to draw the line at investment grade firms, which tend to be larger and to employ a lot of people anyway. So in that sense, you're still helping a lot of people, but it's not as many people as you might be helping if you could spread that money around to more firms. So those are some of the actions being taken in the respective uh, economic plans and or bills that have been passed in the United States and the United Kingdom. We'll see how much good it does. (laughs) It remains to be seen. Uh, But for now, uh, this is what uh, we're looking at. Well, like we mentioned before, there isn't great precedent for this situation. Mm -hmm. So it's tough to know what the ideal move is when you don't have a playbook from history that you can just copy off of. Yeah. And that's, you know, it's even more complicated than just uh, like an economic downturn. You know, we've had those before, but we've never had something like uh, in living memory. We haven't had a massive pandemic like this uh, to deal with. And so the uh, incentives and the structure of the response is weird. You know, you're not you're not trying to boost the economy. You're just limiting damage. How do you do that? It's not something governments have done a whole lot of, I don't think. So I think that's especially uh, problematic since it's uh, completely unprecedented in that regard, specifically. I think a better, I mean, obviously this is this is all helpful, but I think uh, flexibility on the part of market actors is probably going to be the... Uh, more relevant response here because there's only so much government can do. So really, I think uh, individual firms, lenders, landowners, uh, renters, etc. I mean, all of these economic actors, to use a sort of wonky term, I think they all know 
why they're losing money. And it's not because there's a recession or because there's a lack of demand. It's just because the demand has kind of been bottled up by quarantines and other you know, responses to the COVID-19 virus. So with that expectation then, uh, or rather with that assumption in mind, there's an expectation then that once the crisis passes, which you know is an assumption, we can't really know that it's going to pass uh, within the next couple months, but presumably it will at least subside. I think that at, that at least we can assume. When it subsides, uh, there's going to be return of that demand uh, that was missing during the quarantine. So I think with that expectation then, forbearance on the part of, cert- of on the part of suppliers and renters and whatnot is sort of the move. I mean, uh, it's all good and well if you have a contract that requires the counterparty to pay you a certain amount by a certain time period. But And if they don't pay, then it's understandable that you would take them to court and that there would be proceedings and that you would try to get your money back, you know, essentially. But if you know exactly why they were unable to pay and it was specifically due to circumstances that are well out of their control... And it's a systematic problem, like every actor is being affected in this way. It's not like you can find another counterparty that is going to be able to pay you. Given that specific set of circumstances and given the expectation that demand will return later and that money will start flowing again later, it makes a lot of sense to give forbearance in agreements like that, to just tell the counterparty that they don't have to pay during a certain time period. And maybe that maybe you can... Uh, accrue the interest foregone into the original payment, into the principal amount. That's a pretty common move with uh, student debt forbearance. Or maybe you can extend the maturity date so that the payments continue until you know another month or another two months after the intended maturity date. So you could do something like that to get the money back later, You know, in effect, a deferment. Uh, but whether you do something like a deferment or forbearance or even forgiveness, I think that's pretty smart business at this point, because otherwise you're just crushing uh, your business partner. You know, be they, you know, be it in the form of a someone who owns property and is renting it out to somebody, you know, just giving them a pass for their rent for a month or two. That's just smart. You know, it's not again. It's not like if you evict them that there's going to be somebody else coming in. Everybody's in lockdown. You're not really uh, gaining anything by doing that. So that uh, across the economy, if every economic actor at every level of the economy would do that or practice that to some degree, that would go a long way to easing the financial pressure on firms. And in some cases, that's difficult because in some cases, uh, the payment schedule really is fixed, like in the case of debt. You know, if you buy a bond, then that bond has to be paid by such and such time, uh, depending on what's on the bond. So in that case, it's a little more difficult and government action would probably be the necessary step there to help them pay that. But in other cases, like evictions and whatnot, and uh, you know, rent and etc. Uh, well, that's that's one thing. But uh, also in the cases of paying suppliers and uh, other forms of debt, forbearance is the better way to go, I think. And if the, you know, the government already kind of addressed this to a degree, or at least the Federal Reserve did by asking banks not to foreclose on businesses, or at least to be very lenient for firms that are in arrears on uh, debt payments. And uh, that's in recognition of the fact that forbearance is a very strong factor that could really help mitigate the damage from the virus here. And uh, in so much as supply chains are inflexible, you know, in some cases, uh, somebody might not be practicing forbearance. And then that has repercussions down the supply chain. You know, like uh, if somebody owns property, to return to this example again, you can kind of tell what I was thinking of when I was thinking of this. If you own property, like an apartment or whatever, and you're renting it out, 
you may want to give forbearance. You may want to give your renters a pass on their rent for a month or two, but you may not be able to because uh, you have to make utility payments. You know, you have to pay make payments on debt that you made when you uh, invested in the property, etc. You may have people that you need to pay uh, further up the supply chain that you can't. I guess that's not a supply chain, but you may have people that you have to pay that you need your renters to pay their rent uh, in order to facilitate. So in an example like that, well, ideally, voluntarily, those uh, the utilities or what have you would exhibit forbearance themselves, but where they're not, some government action could be useful there, just so that uh, economic actors further down the line, uh, further down the chain, would be able to have the option and use it uh, when they wanted to, so that they don't feel compelled to forego on forbearance because they don't think they can afford to. Uh, I think some localities and states in the U.S. are passing, uh, are trying to get funds into the hands of people like this that own property and want to give forbearance but can't. They're trying to give them money, you know, transfer payments so that they can cover their costs so that they will be able to uh, practice forbearance. But that's expensive. You know, it's not a bad idea, but it's expensive and it, it might be more ideal if you could just get everybody to do it at the same time. Very difficult, I know, just because there's so many people involved, so many different actors. And you know, with a $20 trillion plus dollar economy, it's just immensely complicated. So it's very difficult to just you know, pass an order saying everybody do this and then to actually enforce it. But uh, that's something that I think should be uh, looked at a little more and has been looked at. I mean, I'm, I'm hardly innovating it here, but that hasn't been talked about as much in the media. Let me put it like that or at least not in the media I've been reading. So let's see, a couple other virus things, and then we can kind of move on to some other stuff. You know, I've got a huge back backlog of topics to talk about. Some of it goes back months, even back into 2019. So we've got plenty to go over. So an interesting case study here, as far as virus responses, and this isn't a complete case study, so I don't have anything to really talk about right now, but this is going to be something that uh, I'll try to look at in the future. I'm sure researchers will be looking at it. Uh, some countries are looking at the trade-off in economic activity, the trade-off between economic activity and uh, quarantines. And we, we've kind of touched on this before. You know, If you shut down the economy in order to mitigate the spread of the virus, that's best for public health, but it comes with an immense economic toll. I think I was reading by that the US, by shutting down its economy, is incurring an opportunity cost of something like $2 trillion a month, which is pretty massive. So for the most part, the vast majority of countries around the world have leaned heavily towards public health in uh, deciding between the two. You know, In deciding between foregone economic growth and public health, they go with the public health. But there are a couple of countries that have not. And I think in the future, it's going to be interesting to look at them. Turkey is one. Mexico is another, Sweden to a lesser degree. I was reading a little bit about them today. So these are the three I have on my list here. It's going to be an interesting experiment. It's kind of a natural experiment to see uh, how much worse the virus is in one place over another and just what the economic impact of the virus is when there's not a quarantine, <clears throat> you know, when there's not strong public health action to try to deal with it. And in the case of Mexico, the rationale is that the government just doesn't really have the resources to help the poorest people in Mexico handle it. They just, uh, Mexico can't make massive transfer payments like the United States can. Uh, so shutting down the economy would be massive deleterious to the interests of the poorest people because they just can't, they don't have the necessary funds to really survive that. You know, they need food, they need to pay rent, 
et cetera, et cetera. So the fact that they can't, that's the undergirding reason there. I'm not sure why Turkey is doing it. I think they have more resources, but it's also a developing country. So that that could still be the reason. I suspect politics is probably more at play there, though. The Erdogan government is kind of notorious for uh, trying to protect its image at all costs. That's actually one of the big reasons for uh, a lot of the drama in the Middle East over the past couple months. Not all of it, but a fair amount of it anyway. So then Sweden... I think in the case of Sweden, maybe the government is just uh, underselling the danger a little bit. At least that's what I was reading it today. Uh, but they have taken relatively more action than Turkey and Turkey and Mexico. So it can't be said that they're not addressing it like at all. But uh, they have taken a somewhat laissez-faire approach thus far. That could change, but thus far, the response hasn't been as uh, overwhelming as in certain other places. The focus by the government has been more on getting people to practice social distancing, washing their hands, et cetera, you know, working from home if they can. There hasn't been the big sweeping quarantine announcements that we've seen in other places. So that's something to look at in the future. Maybe we've got some people in chat from some of these places who could kind of comment on it. Maybe that would be interesting. I know we've got a couple Turks, at least, I think. Actually, I could check because we've got our handy dandy country list. Maybe we don't. I did see before we got started, there was someone from Moscow saying that they can't go more than 100 meters from their home. Yeah, Russia just announced some big new measures. Mm. They'd been, you know, we talked about it last week, the Russian government had kind of been not really treating it that seriously. They'd kind of been uh, softballing how serious it was. And now over the past week, they've ratcheted things up. I think they actually did delay that vote we talked about last week. So I was talking last week about the vote, uh, the referendum, the de facto referendum that Russia was going to have about some of the constitutional changes that uh, the Putin government has been proposing. And the government was really, really wanting, uh, for various reasons discussed last time, to get that vote passed. And they seemed to have been very reluctant to reschedule the vote. You know, I think they were talking about just stretching it out over the, across uh, the span of a week instead of rescheduling it because they were just that hell-bent on having it. But... This past week, they actually did move it. So they actually have moved the date for that uh, down the road a little bit. Oh, this was something that happened over the past week. Uh, so the Trump administration was mumbling about establishing a quarantine of New York. Uh, I think the state specifically. Uh, the state of New York has emerged as the uh, major locus of uh, the virus outbreak in the United States. It had been focused mostly in the Northwest, especially Seattle, but since then, it's been spreading everywhere. You know, we've got a number of cases here in Dallas now. And New York, though, has been particularly hit, probably because New York City is just so centralized. That's probably a significant factor there. But regardless of the reasons, New York has a huge number of cases, and now they're starting to have the kind of uh, problems with uh, medical supplies and, you know, an overwhelmed healthcare sector that we've seen in other places. You know, so we're kind of hitting the... Uh, hitting critical mass here in the United States. We're just hitting that point now, and it's probably set to get worse. So the Trump administration was talking about quarantining New York State, establishing a quarantine of the state. The governor of New York said that he was not consulted. (laughs) So sort of more of the same from the Trump administration on that. The Trump administration is notorious for uh, not consulting experts, not engaging in cooperative, the sort of cooperation 
and cooperative politics that have kind of defined other administrations. They don't really do that much. They tend to be a lot more clannish and insular. They make decisions within the administration and they generally don't consult other people who would be impacted. So, you know, this is a case in point. If the federal government did want to establish a quarantine of a state, it would really behoove it to consult with the governor of said state because that would make it a lot easier. And uh, the reason for that is that in the United States, we have a very decentralized uh, political system. The federal government does not actually have the power to quarantine a state in this way, at least not in normal circumstances. It's debatable whether they could do it in an emergency. Uh, Emergency powers give governments of any kind pretty broad sweeping, a broad sweeping ambit to do whatever is necessary. But it's debatable whether or not such powers in the United States on the part of the federal government extend to quarantining an entire state. Highly debatable, to put it mildly. So the governor has said that it would be explicitly illegal and that he's not on board. He also said that he has no idea what he's talking about, but he doesn't like it. Just to, just to give you an example of how ambiguous uh, the Trump administration's comments on this have been. Again, very little consultation before the announcement. So unsurprisingly, the administration has since walked back from this. This is not something that they're going to push, not least because it's just not really feasible. How would you even enforce that? That would be a Herculean task for any government. So it's not happening, but this was an interesting snapshot of some of the uh, difficulty that the Trump administration has been having in trying to coordinate Uh, a response, not only within the administration, but also with other relevant political actors in the United States. An interesting side note here, uh, I actually read that Rhode Island has been telling people from New York to quarantine and even punishing them if they fail to break it. And the governor of New York apparently threatened to sue the government of Rhode Island over this. So I wasn't aware of this. This is a pretty interesting escalation here of the crisis in the United States. I don't think it's going to be like a big political crisis, but it does bring a new interesting political element to the, add a political element to the crisis that I hadn't really been anticipating. You know, different states in the United States have a lot of power. You know, like I was saying before, it's a federal system. So states have a lot of power to manage the crisis how they like. Uh, Ideally, they would be coordinating tightly with the federal government and uh, as part of a larger plan, but that's not happening probably as much as it should be right now. Uh, But regardless, State governments are taking the lead, but there's now some competition between them. That's just the nature of the crisis. You know, the the virus focuses in some areas before others. So then the places that are unaffected are taking measures, uh, targeting some of the places, people from the places that have been more impacted. And Rhode Island is the case in point here. So I don't know that there's a whole lot else that the government of Rhode Island can really do here. I don't think they can just like shut off the border completely. I don't think that's really feasible. Uh, hypothetically, they could, but it's not going to really do much here to stem the uh, spread of the virus in Rhode Island. Let's see. And then I just talked about the legality. Yeah, cooperation really is the solution to this, but that's that's just not really been happening. I think uh, the governor of New York, you know, Americans probably know all about this already. So this isn't really for you so much. This is more for people from outside the United States who maybe don't follow U.S. politics much. Uh, but the governor of New York says that uh, he needs something like 30,000 ventilators, you know, among other medical supplies, because the hospitals in the state of New York are just running out. You know, they've, they're, they've, again, they've hit that critical mass where uh, their ability to handle all of the cases is 
quickly reaching a point where they can't and they just don't have the resources. So they're demanding or forcibly asking, shall we say, the federal government uh, send those supplies because the federal government actually does have a reserve of ventilators and other medical supplies for emergencies. And so the government responded by sending, I think, 400 ventilators, which obviously is not nearly enough. And so that earned the ire of the governor of New York, who you know went into media and lambasted the administration. And see, another example of state competition here is in terms of uh, medical supplies. Another thing I read is that healthcare institutions in different states have started buying up uh, medical supplies in anticipation uh, of a surge in COVID nineteen cases, and the result is that the market is emptying. That there's that's contributing to shortages, which is making it more difficult for the places that are hardest hit. Uh, to get the additional resources they need to handle it. So some places are stocking up that don't really need it because they think they'll need it later. But then the uh, end result is that the places that need it immediately don't have access to it. So again, that's a good example of a the need for a national plan. You know, the federal government doesn't have to establish, you know, martial law to do that. Just coordinating between the states and acting as a kind of national mediator would be enough. But not nearly enough action in that vein has been taken as of yet to prevent these kinds of issues. So this is something that could actually get worse uh, as the crisis proliferates. So these are all, I don't have a whole lot of notes on this stuff here, uh, but from what I've read, this is something to kind of watch. This could end up being a significant source of political tension between states, uh, between states and the federal government. Uh, as well as uh, between localities and state and federal governments. Uh, these shortages are not really being managed well. Uh, there has been action to try to mobilize industry. There's a Defense Production Act. I can't remember exactly what the bill is called. It's something like the U.S. Production Act. It's uh, passed in the 1950s. It allows the U.S. government to force manufacturers uh, to manufacture certain goods uh, in a time of emergency. And that's that's a very rough description. I'm sure, sure somebody more legally minded would be able to kind of tease out some of the nuance there. But basically, that's what it is. And the Trump administration did activate that, although they noted that they weren't actually going to use it. They just said, we're activating it just in case. Uh, well, they actually did uh, just in case apparently happened because they actually did uh, activate it. And they're apparently pressuring, I think, uh, some car companies, some automotive companies, uh, to produce ventilators. They were already announcing that they were going to start producing, uh, to produce ventilators, but the government was apparently unsatisfied with the timetable. And so they've uh, activated this bill to try to apply pressure to get them producing sooner. It's debatable whether or not that's actually going to be a vi viable solution though, because automotive companies just don't have the equipment. I mean, the capital equipment, the actual machinery used to make a car is just fundamentally different than the machinery that you need to use to make uh, ventilators or other medical equipment. So what's happening here is not that they're shifting production from cars to medical supplies. They're actually having to retool the factories and that's going to take time. Uh, so I think I read that the expected peak uh, number of cases in the United States, or let me rephrase that, uh, cases of COVID-19 in the United States are expected to peak in a matter of weeks. Uh, that doesn't mean the crisis is going to end in a matter of weeks. It's still going to take a while for uh, even after that peak for uh, the overall numbers to really fall down to a decent level. Uh, and even then after that, there's still going to be recovery time. But regardless, the time frame we're talking about as far as critical mass, as far as 
reaching the capacity of the healthcare sector to manage this. It's being measured in a, in a matter of weeks. And the time it's going to take to really ramp up production of medical supplies on the part of these factories that are retooling, from what I've read, is being measured in a matter of months. So that's obviously not going to be sufficient to really meet the most difficult period of the crisis that's kind of looming on us at this point. Uh, They could speed that up. I assume the distribution of different manufacturers and how soon they can start producing varies. You know, some are going to be able to start producing sooner than others. But overall, the average seems to be months rather than weeks as is needed. But even amongst the ones that can do that, it's debatable just how much use they can actually be because I was reading that uh, ventilators, I actually posted this on my uh, Twitter, I think this past week or last week, uh, a lot, there's a lot of requirements that are needed to be met on the part. This is something that uh, regulators have enforced. Uh, regulators require very strict conditions under which medical supplies are manufactured. You know, For something like a ventilator, it has to be made in a sterile environment, if I'm remembering this correctly. And uh, whether or not a given manufacturer has a sterile requirement actually requires approval, I think, from the government. And uh, the people who work on medical supplies also, uh, certain types, not all of them, but certain types of medical supplies have to have a uh, certification that takes uh, some months to get. So all of the all of these uh, are meant, all of these factors are meant to ensure that medical supplies uh, are not contaminated and that they are of high quality for the market. But the downside is that uh, it represents a bottleneck in the supply chain if you want to significantly ramp up production in a very, very short period of time. Because it means that the number of people who are certified available to work on producing new medical supplies is kind of fixed in the short term. It's very difficult to get new people in uh, to work in the factories. Uh, you could waive the requirement for the certification, uh, but then you're probably going to end up having to deal with the problems that the certification was meant to prevent. There's also the issue of supply chains. Uh, some of the supplies that are needed to manufacture medical supplies are imported from outside the United States. And as everybody knows, there's a massive uh, explosion in demand for medical supplies and in turn for medical supply inputs. All of the intermediate goods and primary goods that are needed to build medical supplies are massively in demand all around the world. And so uh, the likelihood that you're going to be able to import that stuff is in question. It may not be entirely viable uh, to get that. So that's a bottleneck there as well. So those are two big problems that uh, anybody retooling a factory are going to face. You know, it may not be that they're able to retool the factory such that it meets the necessary conditions needed to manufacture, and they might they might not have the people needed with the necessary expertise to manufacture, and they might not, even if they meet those two criteria, be able to get the necessary supplies they need to manufacture in the first place. So it. While it's good that U.S. manufacturers are trying uh, to manufacture supply, medical supplies, from what I read, it's debatable whether or not they're actually going to be able to substantively contribute much in the short term. In the medium term, these efforts should pay off because we should see a big glut in med- new medical supplies, and hopefully that'll ease shortages in different parts of the United States. And uh, you know, even if it's too late, it could still be used to, uh, could be sent to other parts of the world, assuming that's something the Trump administration wants to do, uh, that are going to be suffering a lot uh, by that point in time. Keep in mind that the virus hit China first, and then it spread to Europe and the United States and some of the other major nodes in the international economy. So the developing world hasn't been hit as hard yet, but it's going to be. And while the United States has no obligation to help with that, 
it would kind of behoove it to do so, uh, since the more, uh, the better the global response to the crisis, the more the economic impact is going to be mitigated and also fewer people will die, which I presume is also important to most people. So helping out with the global effort there with any surplus supplies we might have and that we might build as a result of this retooling of manufacturers, that would probably be a smart move. It's not inevitable that it's going to happen, but that's just a policy recommendation that I would make at this point that I suspect a lot of people in government are pushing the administration to do or more likely are going to. Obviously, at this point, concern is very much on the United States. But that remains to be seen in the future. For now, what we know is that there's a big shortage in the U.S. and will probably continue to be one, even in spite of the efforts by manufacturers to try to help out. So now might be a good time for the usual disclaimer. I'm not an expert in everything I talk about on here. I'm sure some people in chat have probably noticed, at least. Uh, So if I say anything wrong, biased, uh, or stupid please do correct me. You know, I welcome feedback and criticism. I learn from chat. I don't read chat while we do this, but I will read it later. So I will see what you write uh, later on. So, and I do learn from uh, feedback that I receive. It's one of the fun aspects of doing this. So, you know, please, please do keep me honest on here. Participation is encouraged. So let's see. Oh, and just a final point here on the virus. Um, did you, you might've seen this neuro. Did you see the unemployment data? Uh, I saw, I think that it's at the highest point that it's been since 2008 or is it higher than that? Higher, higher. The record for the most unemployment claims, I think it's monthly data. So I think it's the most unemployment claims in a month was something like 800,000. And that was after the 2008 financial crisis. Hmm. So what do you think the number is for the past month? 800,000 is the unemployment during the financial crisis, you said? Yeah. Uh, let's go with the 1.4 million. 3.3 million. What? Oh, man. Yeah, it's a massive number. There was somebody on Reddit who posted a graph that showed the progression of unemployment claims year to year. And, uh, you know, it grows from like 1900 or whatever the starting point was, and it kind of ebbs and flows. And then it gets to uh, the past month and it just shoots up. It completely dwarfs everything else in the chart. It's a, it's just a unprecedentedly massive number. There's never been anything like it. 3.3 million new unemployment claims. Wow. Just illustrates the scale of the crisis that we're having to deal with here. Well, it seems like the cause of this crisis should pass at some point. Like you said, we're yeah. near the peak amount of cases, so should be more of a downhill road relatively. But yeah, it's it's pretty ouch. I watched some YouTube content breaking down the situation, what people can do. It responded to a bunch of frequently asked questions and stuff like that. And it was from some guy at the whatever the team is who's supposed to be responding to this, the COVID response team Mm -hmm. for the United States. And he was saying that for the next ones, we should be a lot more prepared than this, even if it is a worse virus or bacteria, whatever it happens to be. 
we can get some practice on this one and then hopefully next time not be so bamboozled by it. <laughs> that would be pretty ideal, you know. Uh, regardless, some people have been saying that there should be more, you know, generally on the political right of the spectrum in the United States, some people have argue, been arguing that the quarantine should be relaxed or even lifted just because the economic dislocation is so great. But regardless of what people listening think of that, you know, whether you have a left or right perspective on that, uh, there definitely should be a lot more investment in uh, a response, you know, in uh, the capacity of the public health administrations around the United States and at the national level to respond to a crisis like this. So I think there's going to be a lot of thought put into that and that we should have something better, like you say, for next time, you know, a stronger, not only just more resources available stored up, and ready to go, but just also a, a better plan, uh, which we can activate uh, just so that we can have something that we can implement right off the bat rather than kind of having to make shit up as we go along, which is basically what we've been doing. Mm-hmm. Although to be fair, <laughs> most countries around the world seem to be doing that. So uh, we're not short of company in that regard. India's doing that. India's going to get hit really badly. India just doesn't have the uh, public resources. The government doesn't have the finances that are necessary to uh, really proactively deal with it. Like they can't really enforce quarantines as well. Uh, They can't do as much testing. Like uh, a lack of resources really impacts your ability to deal with the crisis in a lot of ways. And uh, India in particular is going to be hurt by that just because they have so many people and have them so concentrated in uh, in a lot of the country and many regions of the country. <clears throat> so that's going to be interesting to watch, to put it mildly. You know, the Modi administration kind of, kind of like Russia, they weren't really doing a whole lot about it. I think they were kind of hoping they wouldn't have to deal with it too much, but then they started getting new cases. And so they announced kind of off the cuff, the prime minister Modi actually went on TV at 8 PM. I think uh, last week, during one day, he went on TV at 8 p.m. and announced that there would be uh, massive quarantine measures implemented, that everybody was to stay home and that you know that a, whole ra- a whole raft of measures would be implemented. They would basically shut down the Indian economy. And uh, the talk was at 8 p.m. and he said that these measures will be implemented starting midnight tonight. So no lead time. The government did get, didn't give anybody time to prepare They didn't do any of that. They just said, okay, we're going to do this now, which is not really the best way to do that. Like, obviously you want it sooner rather than later. And so that uh, you can get more of the public health benefits of shutting things down and mitigating travel and contact. But uh, it also has the negative effect of uh, putting people in a position where they're just unprepared. You know, they get caught out. They don't have everything they need. And in some cases, they can't get what they need because uh, things have shut down. I think I was in the article I read. They said that even grocery stores had shut down, which obviously is an essential, you know, component of the supply chain. People need food, so uh, that's in the United States. It's considered an essential service, so they they get a waiver. But apparently, uh, states and the national government in India have not always extended that. I'm sure they have in some places. It's technically a federal system in India, but uh, they didn't put too much thought into it is my point here. And they just kind of did it one day and they've been struggling to deal with the fallout. You know, 
and also India has just so many people who live uh, who are so poor that they really just can't go without income for an extended period of time. You know, I was reading that, uh, what was it? There was uh, migrant workers in New Delhi who had to walk back to their homes. You know, these are people who live in rural areas and they travel to the city for work. Uh, but since everything shut down, uh, they didn't have any money. And because they didn't have any money, they couldn't get a ride. So they actually had to walk sometimes hundreds of miles to get back home. There was one guy, I think uh, the, the Indian media was talking about, who actually died doing that. He actually tried to walk all the way home and didn't make it. So there's there's been a lot of dislocation. And that just illustrates how much poverty there is. That, that, and that uh, you know the lack of resources with which to handle an extended quarantine is... I don't know. There, there could be significant repercussions there. I don't know if uh, starvation is in the cards. I think the Indian government said that they would issue rations. They're going to ration food because the uh, Indian government plays a much larger role in the economy than it, than the United States government or even a lot of European governments. You know, they actually own certain companies and they have the capacity to uh, take food and ration it. You know, give it out. So they did say that they were going to start doing that, but apparently the amounts that they're giving are just laughably small. It's uh, it's not really enough to live on. So it's not really clear just what's going to happen there, but it, it looks like it's going to be a, a significant crisis in India, at least, if not also other developing countries that are facing similar circumstances. China's kind of at a different level. It's not really comparable. China has a lot more resources to work with. So they they were able to deal with it. It's they do they still have a fair amount of poverty, but it's it's kind of near middle income status. So the government has more money to work with, and the government has a lot more power and administrative capacity to work with than India. So I think that's going to I think that's the explanation for the disparity there. That's why India is just inherently going to be different than China. Been doing a lot of reading about India lately. Hinduism, more not really virus related, but kind of been on my mind anyway we did mention that uh maybe six or seven episodes ago just the religious friction in india i think one of the things that americans and europeans and stuff aren't as familiar with is how diverse india is yeah yeah it's uh thousands of ethnic groups and you know multitudinous religious sects and uh of all varieties. I mean, it's, it's basically Europe. You can kind of think of it like that. It is, it's basically just a somewhat smaller version of Europe in terms of diversity, smaller geographically. I mean, in terms of ethnic diversity, cultural diversity, it's actually way more diverse than Europe. Kind of helps if you don't uh, go through a period where you just murder everybody (laughs) like Europe did mid 20th century, you know, before world war II, there was a lot more ethnic mixing, uh, spatially speaking. You know, there were lots more areas that were had lots of different ethnic groups mixed together. You know, there were enclaves of uh, ethnic Germans in Eastern Europe. Like it was just a lot more intermixed. And World War II then ensued, and that obviously changed things. They just murdered so many people, and then afterwards, the Allies exacerbated it by. Uh, going out of their way to try to force people to move to uh, countries where their ethnicity was the majority. Because they, because part of the reason World War II happened was because of ethnic tension, at least nominally. 
And so there was a desire after the war on the part of the Allies to try to mitigate that threat for the future by having largely ethnically homogenous states. So World War II in the aftermath is a big part of the reason that Europe, uh, well, maybe not a big part, but is part of the reason that Europe is not as diverse as it used to be. That uh, that Holocaust took its toll there. It wasn't just uh, Jews who were killed. It was also millions of Slavic peoples, uh, you know, Roma, you know, the gypsies. Lots of groups were hit hard by that. And the, the after, I think the aftermath is actually lesser known. The, the fact that the Allies engaged in what amounted to mass ethnic cleansing, that's kind of a lesser known aspect of the aftermath of World War II, I think. I think I, uh, I actually watched a documentary about that uh, on YouTube some years ago. And it was uh, pretty wild. The Germans did not do so well in that. They tended to be pretty discriminated against for obvious reasons. But uh, it was not it was not a good time. Forcible migrations, especially those involving millions of people, that takes its toll on many levels, you know, socially, economically, politically, etc. But India didn't really go through anything like that. Um, the closest you could get is partition, which is when Pakistan, uh, that is to say, the Islamic parts of India were carved out of India to form Pakistan. That happened in 47, and that was very violent. Again, millions of people not being forced to migrate, but still feeling compelled to migrate, let's say, that that had significant repercussions for a very long time. Case in point, New Delhi, the capital of India and one of its largest cities, used to be a center of Islamic culture in India. Obviously, it was the capital of the Delhi Sultanates and uh, the Mughal Empire. And so, unsurprisingly, that was a center of Islamic uh, poetry, art, science, you know, whatever you like. But then because of partition, massive numbers of Muslims who lived in New Delhi migrated away. They migrated out to Pakistan. And in turn, uh, a lot of the Punjabis, the Hindu or Sikh Punjabis, uh, who were living in Western Punjab, which is the part that ended up uh, comprising, ended up joining Pakistan. A lot of the people, a lot of the Hindu and Sikh uh, Punjabis who lived there migrated east, ended up in New Delhi. So it really changed the character of the city. I actually read a book about it. Again, I think like five, six years ago, it's been a while, but the author talked about how before partition, the city had more of an Islamic character. There was a lot more diversity in the city. Uh, But afterwards it was mostly Hindu or Sikh Punjabi. And so the culture of the city changed dramatically because it Punjabis are a different ethnic group than the ethnic group that lives in the western part of the Gangetic Plain where New Delhi is. So that really changed the how New Delhi feels and what the people were like, etc. It was a very dramatic shift. And uh, New Delhi is just one case in point. You know, I'm sure that happened in other cities as well. But other than that, India hasn't really had the same sort of experience with uh, fascistic tendencies. <laughs> Let's call it that. I'm sure some Indians would argue that they're having that now, but that's debatable. There's definitely some issues there, but uh, as of yet, the government hasn't done anything nearly of that scale. So India retains its trademark uh, diversity and cosmopolitanism. Limited cosmopolitanism, but that is a core tenet there in Indian culture. India is a fun topic. (laughs) It is. 
we watched a cool video series called the story of india which was really nice i think bbc produced mm-hmm. basically for people who don't know shit about india which was me and many other people probably from the states builds up the lore of the country from its really really ancient history and it's a history so ancient that for westerners it's not even something we usually think about only people from india and china really have that really long thousands year old continuous culture in the same way oh how cool what was that called the story of india i think you shared that with us oh that yeah, yeah. actually yeah i do remember that yeah that was really good mm-hmm. yeah did we watch that when we were uh i think we watched that when we were living together yeah. in dallas yeah oh cool Got it. Time flies. It's hard to believe that was, what, five years ago now? God. Mm-hmm. That's wild. Time keeps going. We're time traveling at a rate of one second per second. <laughs> no brakes, no gas. You can change your, uh, I guess, perspective, right? Yeah. It can feel longer or shorter depending on if you're waiting in line at the DMV. <laughs> Or now, if you're waiting in line at the grocery store to get your two items. Get your toilet paper. Yep. Yeah, Story of India is very good. I would recommend that. And thank you for reminding me of it. Um, Now that you have mentioned that, actually, that same, I think it's also the BBC and even the same presenter uh, that did Story of India actually has since worked on another series called The Story of China. And that's also very good. Uh, So... For those of you who are interested in learning about new civilizations, not even different cultures, just entire different civilizations, I would highly recommend you take a look at the story of India, BBC documentary, and another BBC documentary series called The Story of China. Uh, both of those take a pretty int- take a not a, necessarily an in depth look, but uh, if you're new to the topic, it, it's a very uh, friendly, uh, easy introduction to the history of India and China. And it kind of gets you some of the basic tenets of the cultures and the history and political systems, etc. Yeah, it's fascinating stuff. It's, you know, for me, China and India are fun topics in and of themselves, in particular, uh, specifically because they are just completely different civilizations. So above and beyond just different ethnic groups that you might study in other places, the fact that they have their own civilization with their own, you know, intellectual history, their own literature, etc., you know, their own religions, all of that just makes them very distinctive and unique. And that, that gives uh, studying them and their cultures a very different feel to studying other places. Actually, maybe I could do this real quick here. You've got, you've got my, you pushed my India button. (laughs) So just real quick here, a quick. This is something that I that I thought about years ago when I was you know studying India in more in in more depth. Um, so just quickly, your impress. Well, not not you specifically, Nero, but in general, uh, public perceptions outside of India, anyway, uh, of India are that Indian culture is. Uh, let me see if I can remember what this was. I had three of them. Karma, cows, and caste. That's what it kind of comes down to for most people. 
I think most people are familiar with Buddhism and the idea of karma, uh, which came out of India, and uh, the corresponding notion of reincarnation. I think most people are pretty familiar with that uh, and its relationship with India. So people know that about India. People know that Indians worship cows. Well, maybe worship isn't the right word, but cow, the cow is considered a holy animal uh, amongst most people in India, specifically Hindus. Uh, so I think people are familiar with that as well. And then also caste, that India has a long history with caste and that it's an important cultural institution. Um, probably for the worst, it has a very negative reputation, uh, but that is part of the broader public understanding of India. So would, would you agree with that, Nero? Yeah, that sounds about right. So those are those things but, are pro- probably common knowledge, you think? Yeah, also curry. I would hope most people are aware that <laughs> India has really good curry. Indian food, that's a good point. They, they have really figured out food. Lots of spices, lots of really good yeah. distinct flavors. Many of the basic ingredients are pretty similar. Like you've got rices, you've got meats, mm-hmm. you've got veggies, but the, the pizzazz of their curries and sauces is rivaled only by thailand and china maybe probably just like a legit chinese food not payway yeah <laughs> yeah not, <laughs> not panda express yeah not not like that yeah it's it's uh, equivalent just in the sheer diversity you know partly that comes down to the cultural diversity there's just a lot of different uh culinary traditions and whatnot so there's a lot to work with but yeah it is it is Indian food is fantastic for anybody who hasn't tried it. If you don't like curry, keep in mind that there's a lot of other stuff you can try. I myself am not, am, am not a big fan of curry, uh, but I really like uh, things like, oh, it's been so long since I've had any. Some of the names escape me. Chicken biryani is uh, excellent, especially if you can get it from a good place. Uh, good roti. roti. Roti is basically like a tortilla, so you can get ro- a tortilla that with meat. Um uh, what was it I used to buy? There was one buffet I used to go to a lot that I would overeat at regularly. There was one particular, Chicken 65, that's what it was. I would get Chicken 65 with Doza. Doza is like a uh, fried bread. So they'll get you this fried bread. And if it's a good place, they'll make it with, uh, you know, the right spice, just the right combination of spices. So it's a nice balance between crispy and flavorful. So they'll give you your Doza and a nice bowl of chicken 65, which is this uh, spicy chicken, you know, it's a, and you can mix them together and it's just awesome. You know, you can even get some, uh, oh, I would get some sauce with it. What was it? I don't quite remember what it was, but I would have something I would put on it too. Excellent stuff, all of it, you know, so chicken biryani, chicken 65, doza, roti, you know, if you've never had it, you got to try it at least once because I, I think you might be missing out on something you'd like. But anyway, crash course and what to get in an Indian restaurant. Let's go. <laughs> and, you know, that's just the stuff I'm remembering off the top of my head. I'm sure people will find lots of there's lots of different things you can get. So there's probably going to be at least one thing that appeals to you, even if the stuff I talked about, it doesn't or if you don't like curry or whatnot. <clears throat> but uh, anyway, yeah, so that the public common knowledge of India is karma, cows and caste, roughly, obviously generalization and Indian food. But what would a more accurate trifecta be? You know, so I tried to think of this. How could I condense Indian culture into just three things in a way that more accurately captures the culture than just karma, cows, and caste? So what I came up with 
And, you know, if you're from India or you have more knowledge about India than I do, you know, feel free to critique me on this because I, I would love feedback. But I think I think a better trifecta uh, would be, now let me think here, Dharma, Vedas, and Jati. So, what is so, Jati? Uh, Jati, so <clears throat> when you think of caste, when people outside India think of, think of caste, they're generally thinking of what's called Varna. And Varna refers to the four castes outlined in, uh, well, actually the Vedas, which is ancient literature. So this is actually an archaic notion of caste. It doesn't really represent how caste is actually practiced uh, at a local level amongst the common people of India. Uh, the more accurate word would be jati, and jati refers to uh, caste at a local level. It refers to uh, notions of different groups and their responsibilities to each other, etc. So your jati is your own personal caste that uh, can't, generally it's hereditary. I think that's implied in caste, but also it can also be community. So jati is a better term because it because there are actually thousands of jati in India. It's not just four. It's not like you've got only four categories and everybody in India can be placed into one of the four. It's actually thousands of different castes and all of them interrelate differently with each other. And one of the problems actually India has right now is that uh, there's been so much urbanization, so many people coming from rural areas uh, that it causes tension when people from different rural areas have different jatis and don't know how they relate to each other and then try to impose some of these archaic caste rules caste uh, norms that it still exist in some parts of India, well, broad parts of India and uh, in the cities. And the result is tension between groups. So that's what Jati is just in a nutshell. Uh, so Dharma, what is Dharma? Uh, Dharma does not actually have an equivalent word in English. It's, it's kind of tricky to translate just roughly, you know, I'll take my own crack at it. Uh, just roughly, it kind of means ethical behavior, or if you like, moral behavior. So your dharma is uh, the things that you do to try to be a good person. And dharma can take many different forms, and just about everybody and their mother in Indian history has a different definition of what constitutes good dharma. You know, so any given religious faith or intellectual tradition or sampradaya, etc., all of these generally have their own specific definitions of dharma. But broadly speaking, it refers to traditional notions of ethical behavior in Indian culture, which can be things like vegetarianism, uh, giving, uh, you know, observing the different stages of life, uh, etc. Uh, those, you know, I'm having trouble thinking of more, but you know, roughly, these are prestigious uh, things to practice. You know, they're considered ethical, moral behavior. So if you do them, then you're practicing good dharma. Uh, there's probably more to them, and again, you know, the specifics of good dharma vary from group to group, you know, region to region, et cetera. But those, those are sort of some of the, that's a rough uh, snapshot of what good dharma might look like. So that's dharma, and that's a big part of Indian culture and has been throughout its history. Dharma is a topic that pops up a lot in Indian literature and uh, religious texts, you know, different people debating it and uh, elaborating on their own definition, et cetera. So, you know, ethical moral behavior is a, definitely a key component there. Obviously, that's a key component of any culture. Uh, but in India, religion has been an, a very important part of the culture from the start. And religious institutions have been disproportionately powerful in India uh, relative to other civilizations, I would argue. Uh, that's my impression at this point, given what I know about India. You know, anybody can 
you know, if you have an alternative opposing opinion, please debate me on it. Let me let me know what you think of that. But that is my impression that religious institutions are very important in, in India uh, to a degree that they are not in other places. And the intellectual tradition that uh, religious institutions have cultivated over you know thousands of years of Indian history uh, have resulted in moral ethical behavior. Again, Dharma being a central aspect of Indians' day to day lives. Uh, again, to a degree that you would not see necessarily see in other places. So that's why I think Dharma is really important. And that's why I think if you want to understand Indian culture, understanding Dharma is a big part of that. So let's see, what did I say? Dharma, I explained jatis. So then what are the Vedas? Um, so the Vedas, and I kind of touched on it a little bit before, It's uh, these are ancient texts in India that are uh, associated with the Aryans, um, maybe Aryan invaders. That's kind of controversial though, but whatever you want to call them, migrants or invaders. Uh, Aryans came to India thousands of years ago and uh, they wrote, presumably, or perhaps recorded, since they may be even older, older than we think they are, uh, these texts, these books that are called the Vedas. And uh, these texts are generally uh, technical. You know, they describe rituals and you know religious activity, etc. But they're considered really important to Hinduism. They're a core part of many, you know, a lot of Hinduism in that they elaborate all of these traditions and uh, some of the more archaic uh, religious argumentations and et cetera. The, the intellectual foundation of Hinduism is rooted in the Vedas. And uh, they're not like the Bible or you know, uh, the Torah or uh, the Quran. It's a little different. You know, these books focus on morality, ethics, and they convey their message generally through stories. You know, they're almost like short stories, collections of short stories in a sense. But the Vedas are older than those, and uh, they tend to be more technical rather than focusing on ethical behavior per se. So you might argue, well, how can that be the foundation for Hinduism when obviously there's a broader intellectual tradition? Well, the answer is that Hinduism evolved out of the Vedas. The Vedas were kind of the starting point, although you could argue there Hinduism is actually much older than that. That's probably accurate. Uh, but the literary tradition of Hinduism and the intellectual contribution that it made is very important. And that started with the Vedas. And from there, there came many people who studied the Vedas and then elaborated on them or added more story or added stories in general and uh, et cetera. And so that from that starting point has evolved uh, the broader tradition, you know, be it in the form of uh, worship of different gods uh, or the practice of different Sampradayas, which are like uh, religious traditions, you know, roughly speaking, uh, you know, different sects, you know, uh, different ide ideologies, you know, uh, there's, there's so much to Hinduism. There is no one Hindu religion. It's really just a combination of all of the different strands of intellectual endeavor in South Asia over the past, you know, some thousand plus years, thousands of years. So it's uh, there's a lot more to Hinduism than just, you know, worship of idols. That's, it's so much more complicated than that. It's uh, something I'm reading about right now. I actually just got some books in the mail that I ordered. I'm a little wary of reading them, but <laughs> a little wary of the mail lately for obvious reasons. So I haven't gotten into it too much. But yeah, there's a lot to Hinduism. But the, the relevant factor here, you know, to bring this back, is that the Vedas are sort of the starting point of that. And, uh, you know, just, just to kind of elaborate on this, in Hinduism... Uh, well, I guess I should say in India, you know, in, in among Indian religions, you can kind of categorize them into two different categories. And uh, I think one of them is called Astika, and then the other one is 
the name escapes me. I don't, I don't quite remember, but uh, the other category is the one that does not recognize the Vedas as a divine revelation. Basically that does, does not, they do not recognize their validity as core religious texts. And so examples of these include uh, Buddhism, Jainism, uh, Zoroastrianism, which is not really Indian, but some of them did come over and uh, you know, other groups in that vein. Uh, these are not groups that kind of uh, trace their history back to the Vedas. But the Astika religions in India, they do recognize the legitimacy of the Vedas and the religious relevance thereof. They don't always care that much about them. You know, different, a lot of modern sects don't really pay that much attention to the Vedas other than rooting, you know, identifying them as divine and that they are uh, great texts in history. But beyond that, they've since kind of started leaning on other texts that are more modern. Uh, you know, more modern can be past thousand years or the past couple decades, depending on the sect you're talking about. Uh, but the point is that that illustrates the importance of the Vedas. There are There is still a significant part of uh, religion in South Asia that is still defined, even if only in the de facto, by the Vedas. So that's Dharma, Vedas, Jati. So that's uh, that I think encompasses and is a more accurate description of Indian culture than just looking at you know karma, cows, and caste. It's a it's a little it's more elaborate and it kind of recognizes the uh, the deeper history of India. So that can be a starting point for those of you who might be interested in Indian culture, but haven't maybe haven't been you know haven't had time to do it or kind of have only been interested in passing. Maybe you can kind of look at. Uh, if you want to study it more, you can kind of start with Dharma, Jati, and uh, the Vedas and Hinduism in general, just to kind of get, kind of ease into it. You know, those are good starting points there. And then you can kind of take off from there into whatever uh, really kind of ca ca captures your eye, you know, catches your eye, you know, whatever captures your interest. So it's like you're going beyond just the stereotype or the caricature of Indian, trying to describe the character of yeah. what's defined the civilization. Yeah, what makes Indian civilization unique? That was kind of the objective. Uh, obviously, you can't reduce a civilization to just three things, um, but it's intended there. You know, the intention there is not to simplify it; it's to act as a starting point and to highlight, in a simple, understandable way, uh, how there is a lot more to India than what common knowledge kind of facilitates. You know, how much uh, the public writ large really knows about it. There's a, there's a lot more there. And just to kind of illustrate that, I came up with that, that uh, Dharma, Jati, and Vedas, just to kind of quickly summarize that in a succinct way that's relatively easy to understand and explain. You know, if you really wanted to get into Indian culture and Indian civilization, that would take a lot more than just three items and a, you know, 15 minute talk. There's quite a bit there to go through and it's, it's endlessly fascinating. And studying Indian history is always very rewarding. You want to know something cool? What's that? What you just did is a video. Just so you're clear. Whenever you boil something down into three things and talk about it for 15 minutes and then stop, that's a video. <laughs> so if you wanted to rip the audio from this one and do that, you could do that. But we had talked in the past too about how it's really hard to make content in sizes that are digestible for viewers. And it's never going to be perfect, which is another really difficult part of content creation because you've got the academics out there who do super, super detailed, thorough research and they fact check everything. 
but you're just trying to make a 10, 15 minute video. Yeah. Content like that, I think it's really good where you try to expand people's understanding and your average person doesn't really know that much. So if you're just trying to improve the common person's understanding, it's a lot more feasible than trying to make a major breakthrough in like understanding human nature or something fancy like that. Yeah. Yeah. More deeper endeavors are encouraged. You know, there's nothing wrong with that, but uh, there's also utility in taking the summarized approach. Mm -hmm. You can uh, reach relatively more people, I think, using that approach, even if you can't necessarily uh, move them as much, you know, it's a deeper exploration will be more complete, but it might turn off more. Like you say, you know, like you say, it probably turned off a lot of people, but yeah. Yeah. That's a quick, quick, all too simple summary of Indian civilization as it were. Yeah. I want to understand India better, but I only have 10 minutes. <laughs> your video. Yeah. One of the things I would like to do, and one of the things I've been trying to do off and on for the past, God, 10 plus years, I guess, is uh, trying to understand the different regions and uh, ethnicities of India, as well as I understand those of Europe, or maybe more accurately in the same way that I understand those in Europe. Because obviously, if you ask somebody what they think of Italians or what they, well, what they know about Italians, what they know about the British, what they know about the Germans, there are certain stereotypes, certain traits, certain characteristics that kind of come to mind. You know, people are kind of familiar with those cultures and they have certain associations they make with them. Uh, they almost uh, assign a personality that they link with those cultures. But I can't really do the same with, uh, you know, Gujaratis or Marathis or uh, Kerlins or Tamils, etc. you know, all the different groups in India and regions. So I've been trying to kind of study regions in India intermittently. It's not something I've been doing constantly, but, you know, now and again, I'll make the effort and take notes and whatnot, just so I can try to build that knowledge base. So that would be something fun that I'd like to do for the podcast at some point, just kind of elaborate all that, or even on here at some point, if I could ever get enough information about it, just kind of go through those different regions and peoples and just kind of share that so that people can just learn more about South Asia and just have an impression of India that goes beyond, uh, well, besides the superficial, you know, karma cows and caste, not only beyond that, but just beyond the idea of India as a monolithic whole. Because I think a lot of people think of India and they just have a, image in their mind of a prototypical Indian. But in fact, there's not one prototypical Indian. There's no one person who can be said to represent all of India. You know, it's a billion people with a multitude of different cultures, some of which are, well, many of which are as different from each other as different European cultures are different from each other. So being able to elaborate that, I think would be really cool. That would be really, oh, I mean, it would be fun for me, but I think it would be useful just more broadly, just because there's a lack of knowledge and exposure to uh, regional identities in India. And I think it would flesh out India in the minds of people more broadly if they could kind of see it in that way, you know, see it in a way that they could kind of relate to. Anyway, that's... Would it be pretty contrasted to China in that the like Han ethnic group is mm -hmm. very dominant? You know, that question has really bedeviled me for the past five years. You know, uh, five, you know, I, I guess when I was in grad school, there's not a specific time frame, but when I was studying China, that is something that I thought about and it was something I wanted to explore because 
you know, for thousands of years, Chinese successive Chinese dynasties and uh, up to the present, you know, up to and including the current Chinese government have had a policy of kind of discouraging regional identity. And uh, they go out of their way to use censorship and, you know, whatever other tools they can to discourage that and encourage a single national identity. Uh, but China has a billion people. It's got uh, different, you know, very different regional uh, geography. So I, I just kind of inferred that there must actually be a lot of regional cultural differences there that are under the surface that you just can't really see easily because the government makes it kind of hard to study. So I tried to look at the historical economies of different regions and you know just the history writ large of different regions so that I could try to start building uh, a kind of profile, a cultural profile of the different regions that I could compare to each other and maybe infer what the different groups would be if uh, China were more open and kind of allowed you to see them. But the more I've studied it, the more it seems like there really is just one monolithic ethnic group there, the ethnic Han. And uh, that's, you know, there are still regional differences between different Han groups, but the degree of cultural differences between them is not nearly as great as you can see between equivalent ethnic groups uh, within India or even within, you know, the Hindustani ethnic group in northern India, which is the single largest. That's the one that kind of occupies the Gangetic Plain. Uh, you know, even within that group, there's a lot of diversity. Uh, but within China, within the Han ethnic group within China, there doesn't seem to be nearly as much. There's obviously a lot of linguistic variation. There's a huge amount of linguistic variation, uh, even up to the point that a lot of uh, Mandarin speakers in Han and in China cannot understand each other's dialects. Uh, they're not mutually intelligible. Uh, obviously, everybody speaks uh, Patonghua. Uh, standard Mandarin. Now, everybody gets taught that as the national language, uh, but local dialects of Mandarin are still prevalent, and you know they're sufficiently different that they can't communicate with each other. In fact, it was that language difference in particular that really led me to think that there actually were big differences between that there actually were these sort of secret ethnic groups in China that are just kind of hidden from view. But now they really do share a lot in common, significant commonalities. You know, if you look past the differences in language. Uh, the cultural history is just remarkably homogenous. It's a, it's really quite fascinating. So I've kind of moved away from the view, which I've, I think I actually a couple of years ago, I even talked about that on here, that I suspected that there were different ethnic groups in China and that there were significant regional variations. Uh, I, I've kind of walked back from that since then. So I think, I think really China does have a lot of homogenous culture. That doesn't mean that there's not regional differences, and in fact, there's a lot more regional differences than I think people think, you know, kind of like with India, people uh, outside China tend to think of China as being a monolithic whole. But in point of fact, there are significant regional identities and differences, you know, uh, culturally, politically and economically. Well, not so much politically, but there are some there, too. Uh, but there's not there's just not nearly as much as I would have expected there to be, given the geographic size of India and the demographic extent of India or oh, China, rather, sorry, the geographic size of China and the demographic extent of China. It's uh, it's just so vast, I would have inferred there would be more diversity there than there actually is. And I think some of that comes down, you know, this is just me. This is, at this point, <laughs> this is more shower thoughts from John Smith. So, you know, take this with a grain of salt. You know, this is speculation on my part right here, but I, I wonder how impactful, you know, what the relevance is of uh, China's geography 
to its cultural homogeneity. Because uh, if you look at Chinese history, um, Chinese civilization started in the Wei River Valley, if I'm remembering correctly. Uh, it didn't actually start on the Yellow River, which I think is a common misperception. It actually started west of that in the uh, what's called, what I've read described as the Los Plateau. I think that's how it's pronounced. And there's a, you know any number of meandering rivers that were are there. And that's kind of where the first agriculture in China kind of really germinated. And then from there, they moved into the Wei River Valley and started building up broader agricultural civilization, which was the first you know, Chinese uh, dynasties. And from there, they've migrated east. Now, if you look at um, genetics in China, there's apparently, you can roughly divide Chinese people in two between those who are descended from the northerners and those who are descended from southerners. And the southerners in China, genetically speaking, are more genetically rated, related uh, to ethnic groups in Southeast Asia, you know, like Vietnam, Thailand, etc. And you can kind of see that in their faces. You know, physically, they look similar. Uh, not completely, but you can kind of see that they're more similar there uh, to the people in Southeast Asia than to the people in Northern China. And that's because they kind of come from two different genetic lineages. Now, the relevance of that to what I'm talking about is that reflects the different patterns of migration. Uh, from what I read, uh, the people that migrated into southern China probably came from uh, roughly kind of around Yunnan province, which is like southwestern China. So those people migrated out and populated Southeast Asia and then also southern China. And then they moved along the east coast of China up to roughly where Shanghai is right now. Uh, so that's one direction of migration, and that comprises one part of the Chinese demographic lineage. The other part came from the Wei River Valley and that civilization, and they migrated east uh, along the Wei River and then into the Yellow River Basin. And then from there expanded south into, you know, Sichuan and then east into uh, the up to the Yellow Sea, north into the Yan area, and then south into the Huai River Basin. So that's that's sort of the rough, that's a rough summary um, from an amateur. Let's emphasize that. Um, <laughs> I'm an amateur historian. So again, take this for what it's worth. Take this with a grain of salt. But that's a rough summary of the expansion of Chinese civilization in the North. So it may be that the expansion of Chinese civilization started so isolated because, you know, other, civil other civilizations like Indian civilizations were influenced by, you know, Persian civilization, Middle East, you know, Samaric uh, civilization, etc. There was a lot more interchange and communication uh, between the civilizations in South Asia, the Middle East, and Europe uh, over the past couple thousand years. But China was a lot more isolated. So what I'm driving at here is that I wonder if uh, the homogeneity of Chinese culture today isn't partly a result of that isolation, since they were able to expand relatively uninhibited and without much intermixing uh, from the Wei River Valley out into the rest of China uh, until they intermixed with that southern Chinese group. But that's kind of another, that's another discussion. You know, the impact, the intermixing of southern Chinese with northern Chinese was actually the original genesis of Chinese culture. Uh, a lot of it still came from the north, I think, disproportionately. But there were cultural practices and artifacts and I think art, uh, among other things, that were taken from the Southerners and merged into Northern culture such that uh, you could call Chinese culture a, a uh, mixture 
of the two, north and south. And that happened thousands of years ago. That's that's definitely not a recent thing. But uh, exactly how that happened is something I'm still reading about. The extent to which it happened is something I'm still reading about. So I can't really comment too much on that. You know, Again, these are all my impressions from my early reading of it, some of which happened a long time ago. So I'm you know, I may not even be remembering all of it or remembering it all that correctly. Again, it's a summary. I'm trying to summarize here. But uh, if that's the case, you know, if geography is part of the explanation, then uh, I think I think that just I think that's intuitive to me, uh, just because of the limited interactions with uh, other civilizations that could explain that. You know, because with something like India, say there were successive waves of uh, either migrations or invasions. You know, sometimes both over the course of its history, not just the Aryan migration slash invasion, but also, you know, uh, the onset of Islam, you know, the invasion of the Turkic uh, central steppe peoples, the nomadic peoples of uh, Central Asia. Uh, Those peoples blew into India several times. You know, the Kushan Empire was one result. I think that was a classical period. And then during the medieval period, uh, the Islamic Turks came in, Persianized Islamic Turkic peoples. Uh, They invaded. And then, of course, there were the Mughals who came from Afghanistan and, you know, and then the British, you can also think as a kind of uh, barbarian invasion in its own right, bringing new ideas and cultures and whatnot. So that's that's just illustrating the uh, just illustrating how much India has been influenced by foreigners over time. You know, the massive influx of new people bring new ideas, new culture, etc. And the result is that there's a kind of synthesis with the culture that's already there. Uh, it's a testament to the strength of Indian culture and its ideas that their original ideas and practices and customs were able to survive all that. Uh, while still incorporating new ideas from the new invaders and migrants. Uh, but regardless, in China, they didn't have to do that. You know, they really haven't had a whole lot of migrant invasions. They've definitely been invaded by central steppe nomads plenty of times, uh, for sure. But it doesn't seem to have impacted the culture too much. Uh, there was a linguistic impact, and there were some customs that were passed on. Uh, but overall, Chinese civilization, I think, was sufficiently isolated that it didn't have to change that much over time uh, by synthesizing new cultures and whatnot uh, from foreign migrants. And the result is that uh, the original culture and the way River Valley was able to expand unmolested and that most of the civilization today in China, most people in China are descended from those people. So the, re- the result then is the relatively homogenous culture that we have now in China. It's uh, If that's accurate, and again, please do criticize me if I'm, you know, getting this wrong, and then you and you know better. But if that's accurate, that's pretty remarkable. That's uh, that that is definite. That would definitely be one of the distinctive aspects of Chinese civilization. Then, if that were true, that's a pretty wild ass tangent we went on. Yeah. Well. We're good at those, and I think that's part of the fun with this is it doesn't get too stale and scripted. We know that um, many university professors are well-versed in the art of making college students fall asleep, <laughs> and a lot of that is when you're just, you got a syllabus and you just read from it one step at a time. If you can go on a tangent, I think that's one of the situations where the students tend to wake up. Whenever you get the professor to talk about something that's different and unexpected, it becomes more of a critical thinking exercise rather than a passive, I'm absorbing the content that I'm supposed to to get the grade. Yeah. You can actually put your thinking cap on. Yeah, hopefully it's accessible in that way. 
I try to present information that I find interesting and, you know, kind of in the hope that others can kind of benefit from it and uh, find it interesting as well. So ideally that's the case here. These are, these are more pet projects of mine, you know, hobbies, I guess. <clears throat> I guess with that said, uh, maybe this would be a good time to ask this question. This is a question that I was thinking about this past week, actually, because I know we have, uh, you know, kind of skipping, you know, moving beyond culture into the political. I know we have a, a broad range of people of uh, a broad range of political affiliations amongst viewers here. And, you know, uh, people on the left, the right, the center, etc. And at various times I've talked about uh, policies and whatnot uh, that obviously they have an interest in. They have a very particular perspective on. But I've tried to do so in a neutral way uh, that takes into account everybody's perspective uh, while still having substantive commentary uh, about the nature of the policy and how it's work and how it's likely to play play out. And uh, this, you know. Even beyond policies, you could I could say the same about, I try to do the same with news items in general and whatnot. So my question to the people listening then, and I'm, well, I mean, I guess this is more to repeat listeners who might be listening, but uh, for those of you who have uh, variant political ideologies and whatnot, how would you rate me in terms of how well I'm doing and trying to stay neutral and presenting ideas in a neutral and yet still substantive way? Because this is something that I've, that I've very much been trying to do over the course of these uh, episodes, seminars, uh, sessions, you know, whatever you want to call them on here that we do on here. And uh, haven't really, I haven't explicitly asked for feedback before, but uh, I think we've been doing this long enough that people have a large enough sample size to kind of make an inference. And, you know, I know I've changed with time and how I've tried to do it, but yeah, just let me know how we're doing, how I'm doing on that. And, uh, so that I can make adjustments as necessary. Because I do want to be, I want to try to be as neutral as possible so that I can, uh, you know, speak to as many people as possible and so that I can um, kind of build our uh, base here, so to speak. So that's just a question that I give to the viewers and they can answer as they like. Uh, you know, you don't have to, but any, any feedback would be appreciated in that vein. Okay, just for a quick rundown, as for live, 10 out of 10, uh, sounding very professional. If your intention is to stay apolitical and not endorse a side, you are maddeningly neutral. <laughs> you rate Agent Smith as more informed and educated than I am and more unbiased than mainstream media. Always on point with being neutral in the way you expose news or concepts. Factual and interesting. Cool. cool. So you get five stars. My question now regarding Agent Smith is what do you think his political orientation is? <laughs> and I'm asking this from the position of someone who's been his friend for 10 plus years and I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not something I've talked about a whole lot on my own time even. Yeah, but also there's the freedom to to be as passionate as you want to for a party or for a side or you can be impartial in the sense that your passion is in the history and the facts and there's just so much to learn that uh, from what a lot of what you've said you would probably say that you're too ignorant of stuff to be able to say what the correct answer is for a lot of stuff generally yeah generally i think that's pretty accurate 
There's a, I have a lot of room for improvement, suffice to say. Yeah, but everybody does, but some people have delusions that they don't have room <laughs> for improvement. Well, that's human nature. You know, that's uh, something that just has to be navigated. You just try to deal with it as best you can while encouraging human progress in order to mitigate it as much as possible. So hitting it from both ends in that sense. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so let's see, I think we did have some questions. So did we have time for that? I think we're doing okay on time, aren't we? Let's see, yep. one hour 44, about halfway through then. Sure. I'm assuming that three hours is still okay. Okay, so let's see. First question. If the debt cascade is a problem, one person owes money to someone who owes money to someone else and so on, why not just pause debt for a time? Yeah, that's that's basically what should happen, I think. I, w- I think that would be a good thing. I, I guess I already kind of talked about this before, you know, the whys and why it would be beneficial. But uh, yeah, I think uh, if you could do it voluntarily, that would be ideal because then there's just less paperwork. You don't have to worry about enforcing it. And really, it's intuitive, I think. I think everybody would benefit from this at all levels of the economy. And I'm sure there are some people who would not. Again, it's a $20 trillion economy here in the US, so it's endlessly complicated. There's got to be some people who would lose out by doing that. But I think overall, it would be massively beneficial for the economy and massively beneficial beneficial in mitigating the negative impact of COVID-19 if everybody just recognized their own enlightened self-interest, so to speak, in observing forbearance in this manner, yeah. but it may be that there are there is a necess- there is a necessity for the state to get in there and to try to uh, show people the error of their ways, so to speak. I don't know that that would be entirely effective. Again, it's just such a huge economy that it would be difficult to actually enforce that. Uh, but it may be that there are certain select individual areas of the economy uh, that are particularly important or where people are particularly vulnerable where government action uh, would be useful. So in those cases, the state really could uh, contribute significantly. <clears throat> but regardless of how it's done, I think it definitely should be done at some level in some way. I think that's uh, probably about the only way that you can really substantively uh, mitigate the impact of COVID-19 because uh, otherwise you're just going to get a cascade of uh, uh, what insolvencies, bankruptcies, etc., And there's just not going to be uh, people around to hire anybody back. You know, there's a huge amount of surplus labor in the United States right now. Again, 3.3 million unemployment benefits were filed for, you know, the past month. So there's a huge amount of labor that's just waiting to be used. And uh, if the people who had been using them go under, then it's not really clear uh, where the new employers are going to come from. So, yes. (laughs) Short answer, yes. I would agree with that. Uh, Let's see. So the next one was the Trump. And uh, let me quickly add here. If I ever don't answer a question to the questioner's satisfaction, I would encourage the questioner to ask again and uh, maybe elaborate on what I missed. You know, I've misread misread questions before and, you know, missed the point of the question, et cetera. So, you know, if you're you're not satisfied, please feel free to ask again and I'll be happy to return to it. And uh, I think Mass Neotech is handling questions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you have a question, tag uh, Mass Neotech because he's the one who's uh, sending me the questions. You know, sometimes I read through the chat after we do these and I see some people asking interesting questions, but they didn't 
tag anybody. So they did, they kind of didn't pop up. So, you know, do, do tag the appropriate person in this case, uh, mass neotech, if you have that question and I'll, I'll be happy to address that. So next question here, the Trump administration has been accused of giving away soft power on the global stage. What kinds of soft power has the U S had? And if is it is being eroded, how so? Okay, so the traditional, I think, notion of American soft power has been twofold. I guess democracy and capitalism are the two big things. You know, the United States historically has encapsulated, you know, just raw liberty. You know, obviously, the United States kind of is the most raw dog libertarian Western democracy in Western civilization, or at least in the sense that it's a first world country anyway. I guess there are places that don't have the administrative capacity to do some of that stuff. But in general, yeah, the, the U.S. is associated with democracy and democratization. And uh, what a successful democracy that embraces uh, an open political system can achieve. Now, some of that reputation has been damaged over time. You know, the Cold War obviously put a dent in it because then the United States started to be associated with propping up uh, authoritarian dictators and, you know, a lot of the activity and that kind of thing, you know. And but by and large, that reputation has still been maintained. It's still there. It's not as strong as it used to be, but it is still there. There are lots of people around the world who live in actual authoritarian dictatorships, and they look at the United States as a, maybe not an ideal, since there's lots of problems here, but an example to be looked up to. It's something that they can aspire to. They, their country could be as democratic and prosperous as the United States if they could just make the necessary changes. So in so much as the United States is successful as a democracy, it's a role model for people. So that that is a form of soft power that the government can use by uh, giving support to people who are trying to democratize their country or otherwise implement reforms. That can be controversial. I know there's a significant people outside the United States and actually inside the United States who think government programs that support democracy programs overseas uh, are actually just fronts for the CIA. You know, I think the uh, National Endowment for Democracy is a case in point there. I see that mentioned a lot and uh, when people talk about the CIA and their malignant activity overseas. There is some truth to that. It's not as though the CIA has not used that before as a way to uh, get agents into countries and not used it to influence the politics of countries. But by and large, it's a standalone institution, institution that honestly tries to encourage uh, democratization movements. Not very well, I might add. It's not a super well-funded program. You know, I mean, the, the best uh, argument against American imperialism is that we're really bad at it. <laughs> if that is what we're doing, we're not doing it very well. So I would argue, and the National Endowment for Democracy is a case in point in that regard. But regardless of that, you know, that aside, uh, soft power, that democracy and democratization has been uh, one way that the U.S. has uh, projected, shall we say, soft power on the global stage. And capitalism is the other one. You know, the United, you know, obviously throughout the Cold War, there was a big debate about whether it was better to have a command economy or a free market economy. And I would argue that the Cold War was not really about different economic systems. It was actually about authoritarianism versus uh, open political systems. I think that's a more accurate characterization of the competition. But an important element, you know, regardless, uh, was the debate about economic systems. And so for those people who lived in societies that had command economies, but didn't like them, you know, did not like the trade-offs that were being made in those systems and wanted to change them, 
the United States was a useful counterpoint because the United States was a free market economy. Well, had a freedom, it had a free market economy to correct my grammar. It still does, but it, <laughs> to use the old Mitch Hedberg joke, it still does, but it used to, too. My language foibles aside, uh, the United States was an example that could be look, looked up to. The United States was an example of a society with a free market economy that was very successful. And so they could point at the United States and say, hey, they can do it. This is what we could achieve. Why don't we do that? And so that was another form of soft power. The United States could give support to movements or groups in other countries uh, that want to liberalize their economies. Although I think generally, politically speaking, the United States generally, when it's given support, has focused on democratization movements. I don't know that I can think of any um, economic liberalization movements or groups that the United States has supported like that. But I think the soft power projection in that case, with regard to people who want liberalization of their economies, comes more in the form of the example. You know, just by being an example, the United States can uh, encourage people to try to do that. And uh, people like that also frequently get their education in the United States. So they come here, they get exposed to U.S. culture. And, you know, for those of them not, for those who are not sufficiently repelled by the problems that the United States has, they can look at U.S. culture as an example and try to emulate that when they go back uh, home to their home countries and maybe try to implement reforms at some level. So in so much as the United States is a successful capitalist country, uh, it's a kind of spokesman for the capitalist system, or, or more accurately, a free market system. Let's put it like that. Capitalist can be kind of a loaded term for a lot of people. So let's just call it a free market system. And so in that sense, uh, America has soft power because then leaders, you know, powerful people, reformers, etc., people who are responsible for managing their economy, the economy in their country, a lot of them get educated in the U.S. and then they try to emulate U.S. Uh, economic systems, you know, et cetera, institutions and whatnot. So that's another form of soft power, although that one is much more indirect than directly supporting democratization movements. Those would be the two principal forms of soft power that I can think of off the top of my head. There's also soft power in terms of culture, like uh, U.S. movies, U.S. music. I was about to say ideas, but I guess I just elaborated that. But yeah, movies, music and other forms of culture are also uh, forms of soft power in so much as they build affinity for the United States and the American people uh, in other countries. So you might, add, you might argue that, you know, listening to this list of examples of soft power, that, that it doesn't really mean that much. It seems like a pretty limited tool set to use in foreign policy. And you would be correct. <laughs> soft, power, soft power is actually kind of a controversial term in the foreign policy uh, community, so to speak, in the literature, because it's seen as kind of a vague term that doesn't really mean anything. And uh, it's not really something that you can count on as a really strong tool to affect, to effectively pursue your interests in the foreign policy realm. If you want, this is my joke example, and it's actually an accurate example, but this is the one that I always think of. Japan went out of its way to try to build soft power uh, over the past couple decades. And they tried to do it by, you know, encouraging Japanese media, the exports of Japanese media. They tried to make it easier to travel to Japan so that you could you know, go there as a tourist and whatnot. And the hope uh, on the part of the Japanese government is that they could have a you know, strong base of people in other countries that they could use to try to lobby their case. You know, they could use those people to exert the influence and affect the policymaking and politics of other countries to the favor of, the Jap of Japan. What ended up happening 
is that the principal form of Japanese culture that they were able to successfully export has been anime. And hence, the principal group of people that they've cultivated as their avatars in other countries are Weibos. So this effort by the Japanese government to build uh, soft power has not really succeeded because all they've really ended up with is an army of Weibos. Yes, we will get them to all browse our cartoons. (laughs) That's the beginning of our conquest of the world. Yeah, and that's, that's a very limited utility, obviously. I mean, not to knock people who like anime. I'm a fan myself. But as a political tool, you know, as a group through which you could uh, try to influence a country's politics, I don't think that's, that's a really viable strategy. So that just illustrates the limits of soft power in foreign policy. It's, it's not really something you can reliably use. You know, military power or economic pressure, those are more important tools in foreign policy. And to a lesser degree, also political ties, you know, strategic alliances like NATO, for example, uh, those are also important, but soft power, not so much. So now that I've defined soft power, that's the first part of the question. Uh, the second soft part power of the, is anime. <laughs> the power of anime. The second part of the question is what kinds of soft power? Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, if American soft power is being eroded, how so? So uh, the way that the Trump administration has eroded soft power. And again, soft power is a vague term, so it's kind of debatable what it is in the first place, let alone how it's being degraded. But the arguments that uh, I've seen made and the basically center around the loss of prestige. You know, the United States is a spokesman for democracy and capitalism because it's a powerful, stable country. And people can say, look, part of the reason it's powerful and stable is because it has an open political system and a free market. But if the United States starts to struggle, then you can't really argue that. And in that sense, the American model, so to speak, of democracy and capitalism becomes less attractive in turn. And if it's less attractive in turn, then the United States doesn't really have as much pull with people who are would-be reformers at the grassroots level or people in power uh, who are looking at different alternatives with which to reform their economies. Uh, All these different people are going to be less motivated by U.S. success if there's not that success uh, in the first place. So that being the case, then you could argue that the United States has less soft power in so much as U.S. prestige has taken a hit. Uh, from problems with U.S. politics, uh, take your pick. There's lots of examples. I'm sure everybody has their favorite. So there's that. And then struggles in the U.S. economy, in particular with things like inequality and whatnot. Those also have been hurting. Uh, that's not something, though, that I would necessarily attribute to the Trump administration. That's more just baked into the system and has to do with structural changes into the economy that we've talked about before. And so those are two problems that the U.S. image has overseas. And in so much as uh, the image has deteriorated, there's a corresponding fall in quote unquote soft power. So that would be, uh, that's my argument anyway. I'm sure somebody who's, you know, foreign policy, there are professionals who study foreign policy for a living. They could probably elaborate that better than I can. You know, again, I'm not, that's not my area of expertise, but that's my impression. So let's see. Next question. Why hasn't India been affected by the virus being so close to China? Well, for one, it has been affected. We're seeing that now, but there's been a delay. So I guess you could ask, why wasn't it affected affected earlier? I think the reason it wasn't affected earlier is that uh, the virus spread amongst the major paths of transportation. 
maybe that's a poor turn of phrase, you know, it spreads person to person. Uh, so transportation routes that carry the most people are the ones that uh, transmitted more of the virus. Uh, let me try to explain that. The virus started in China. China is a major locus of international trade. So there's lots of people moving in and out. So who do they trade the most with? Well, a lot of it is with Japan, the United States, and Europe. So in turn, because there's just so much human traffic moving from China to those places, those places were hit even before areas that are geographically closer uh, to China. You know, there's not as much, there's not as many people moving between, say, China and Vietnam or China and Laos or China and Mongolia as there are people traveling from China to the United States, China to Europe, etc. So more people means more uh, infections, which means those places uh, were hit earlier. But everywhere is going to get hit eventually. That's just the nature of the virus. You know, it's very contagious and people move all over the world all, all the time. So it's going to get around for sure. But India was affected later on for that reason. You know, uh, there's there's a fair amount of travel between China and India, but not nearly as much as these other places. So it just wasn't hit as hard as early. So let's see, what is the trade relationship? The next question, what is the trade relationship between India and China now and in history? Oh boy, that's <laughs> that's a big question. It's a, sh it's a short question, but it has a big answer. So I don't know how much of that I can really capture. I guess the easier part of the question is the trade relationship now. Um, the trade relationship now is a little bit limited. Uh, there's some manufacturing trade that goes, you know, goods that get traded between them, but not much. You know, India is not really a huge market for uh, Chinese manufacturing goods or, you know, even other countries. Part of that has to do with trade barriers that uh, the Indian government imposes. India is one of the more protectionist uh, countries in the world. But it's also just because there's not a lot of demand. The Indian economy is not as developed as China's economy or you know other economies. So there's not as much of an inflow of imports for that reason, partly. Uh, India does have a pretty thriving uh, IT sector, you know, information technology, tech, what have you. Uh, but I think even there, they don't trade a lot just because of the Great Firewall, uh, so to speak, which is the, the colloquial term. Uh, for the censorship regime in China that blocks off internet ac access to much of the outside internet, much of the internet outside China, rather. So manufacturing uh, services, agriculture, there's not a lot of trade there either. And that's, you know, agriculture is a sensitive industry sector, rather, in uh, every country in the world. And so everybody tries to be uh, relatively protectionist for that, just to protect the farmers and uh, to try to ensure the a native food supply is always available just in case of crisis. So those are the three major sectors there. And as I've uh, explained here, there's, there's just not a lot of trade between them uh, for the reasons outlined. So the trade relationship is pretty limited. Uh, there is water, I think, is a major issue. It's not, it's not a major trade item by like volume or value, but uh, a lot of the major rivers in India actually originate in uh, China. And the Chinese government has actually built a dam on, I think, uh, has built dams on a couple of them, which is having effects on downstream water supply. So that's a, that's a significant international issue. That's not really trade, but 
historically the Chinese and the Chinese government and the Indian government have coordinated on that. Uh, but the Chinese government has been coordinating less. So that's kind of pseudo trade in so much as there was coordination, roughly speaking. Yeah, I don't think there's much to it beyond that. That's uh, that's all I can think of. You know, I'm, again, uh, somebody more familiar with the topic could do better. But uh, from what I've read, that's that's pretty much the extent of the trading relationship. It's not much. Now, historically speaking, I guess it depends on how far back in history you want to go. Because uh, Sino-Indian trade relations go back thousands of years. So if, I mean, if you want a complete history of Indo, of Sino-Indian trade ties, I can take a crack at it, but I, I don't think I can really capture very much of it. Uh, In one epic 16-hour episode, you can <laughs> to answer one of the largest questions he's ever received. I'll say this much. Let me, let me draw the line at, um, let's go back like 2000 years. That's, I think that's fair. Uh, there's a, the Indian ocean for during that period, you know, 2000 years ago, and for much of the subsequent period, up, you know, up until relatively just a couple of centuries ago, uh, the Indian ocean was the center of most of the world's trade. It was a, it was the major hub. And uh, much of the trade went from India to the Middle East, India to China, India to Southeast Asia, India to Southern Africa. But India was basically the focal point of a lot of it. Uh, you know, wherever you wanted to go, you probably had to go to India first. You know, if you want to buy something from China, you go to India first. In fact, you could probably just buy it in India since there are merchants who travel from India to China, bring back goods and then sell them in markets in India. So. You could kind of think of India as a giant intraput in a sense, you know, kind of a giant warehouse where all of the different goods of the world could kind of come to and where you could buy a lot of them. So India was a very important node in the Indian Ocean trade network. Uh, it wasn't the only one, but it was definitely a very important one. And China also was very important, but more as a source of goods. They didn't necessarily buy a whole lot. A lot of what they took in was in the form of tribute from uh, lesser kingdoms on the periphery of Chinese civilization. But there were people who bought uh, Chinese goods with gold, generally, or silver or some other uh, valued resource. I think India sold them a lot of cotton for a long time. Yeah, I'm still learning the actual goods that comprise the Indian Ocean trade, so I can't get into too much detail there. Uh, but China, for its part, exported a lot of I think three things in particular, tea, porcelain, and silk. I think silk is what, I think silk originated in China. So they had a first mover advantage on that. So they exported that stuff to the rest of the world and took either tribute or gold or what have you in return. And uh, China was just such a big market that, you know, they didn't really feel, they, there wasn't much they couldn't get in China uh, that they needed to import. So imports were not necessarily a big thing. That's that's one of the contributing factors to uh, Chinese having a somewhat insular worldview. And that, that again goes back to what I was talking about before, about how they were relatively more isolated. Uh, but anyway, they exported tea, porcelain, and silk, and in return got gold. And then that entered the Indian Ocean trade uh, by way of traders who were buying stuff in Southern China and then taking it generally to India or perhaps another intrapote between India and China, something like uh, something in the Malacca Strait, let's say. Uh, so for the most part, I think that comprised 
the Sino-Indian trading relationship during the heyday of the Indian Ocean trade. And that persisted for a very long time, you know, over a thousand years. And then it changed the dynamic of the trading. I mean, the dynamic of the trading relationship changed over that thousand some years when the Indian Ocean trade was in its heyday. Actually, the, the Indian Ocean trade is something I've been working on. I've been researching it. Uh, again, intermittently, but more so since I came up with an idea for a podcast about it. But it's still something I'm learning about. So again, I can't really get into it too much. Uh, but the nature of the Indian Ocean trade, trade changed over the thousand years when it was prominent. But then it really changed with the introduction of European trade. Now, once Europeans were able to figure boats out <laughs> and were able to travel around the Horn of Africa, that really started to uh, shift uh, the nature and flow of the trade. And it, it took a while. You know, it, it's not like it happened immediately. You know, one of the things I've been studying is, uh, you know, the Indian Ocean Trade podcast that I'm kind of working on intermittently. Don't expect it anytime soon. Uh, but one of the things I've learned about reading about it is that Europeans were not that impactful for the first 200 some years they were in uh, the Indian Ocean which kind of surprised me because I've heard uh, in European empires described uh, as being, you know, centuries old. They have roots in Asia that go back, you know, hundreds of years. But actually, while they have roots that go back hundreds of years, they didn't really matter until the 1800s. Uh, well, 1700s, let's say mid-1700s. That's really when European empire in Asia started to really manifest. And even then, it took like another hundred years for it to really become dominant. So European empires in Asia are not really as deeply rooted as I, well, at least I had previously thought. And that was one of the revelations that I've kind of discovered. It's uh, pretty interesting. But anyway, uh, when things did start to change in the Indian Ocean trade because of European uh, traders coming in, uh, one of the big shifts that happened in Sino-Indian trade had to do with European traders trying to find something that the Chinese would want because they wanted to buy lots of stuff from China. You know, they wanted all that porcelain, silk, and tea, you know, tea in particular. But the Chinese only really wanted gold. You know, they didn't want trinkets. They didn't want technology. They didn't want any of the other stuff that the Europeans kind of brought to them. Just gold is fine, the Chinese basically said. So that, uh, that became a problem after a while because eventually a lot of the uh, – specie in Europe, you know, that is to say the metal supply, the gold, the silver coins, etc. A lot of that started to be expended. A lot of it flowed into China, didn't come back out. So European traders found it increasingly difficult to find the liquidity in the market they needed in order to buy this stuff. So what do they do? Well, the answer, partly for the English East India Company, was to start taxing people in India. And it's a lot more complicated than that. Uh, but basically, one of the ways that they started to find the liquidity they needed uh, came in the form of the empire they were building in India. They were able to take the tax revenue that they got, which was principally in the form of coinage, uh, you know, silver coins, gold coins. They would take that and they would go and buy stuff in China with it, which apparently had a deleterious impact on India. I actually, I, you know, it's interesting this question kind of came to this because I was actually just reading about this uh, in a book I got called about... I think it actually is called Economic History of India. It's been a pretty fascinating read thus far. This led to a deflationary period in India's history. You know, this period when a lot of the gold supply, the, well, the coinage was taken out of India by the East India Company and taken to China. The result of that was a lack of coinage in India. 
you know, and uh, because of that, prices fell and production fell off because it was just too difficult. Because there was, it was just too difficult to get coinage for normal economic activity, and it, it had a uh, depressive effect on the state of the Indian economy. And I think this period is where a lot of the uh, a lot of the decline in India's economy under colonialism kind of happened. I'm still reading the book. I'm still in the first couple of chapters, so I don't want to commit too much on that. But that is my early impression from what I've been reading thus far. Now, later on, uh, well, actually, during this same period, uh, the coinage in India also started to get short. So now the British had to come up with something else. You know, how do we how do we find coinage uh, to buy stuff from China since they don't want anything that we have? So the answer, and I'm sure a lot of people in chat probably already know the answer, but the answer came in the form of drugs. Uh, the British, in effect, uh, specifically the East India Company, in effect, became probably the biggest drug dealers in history. Uh, they actually cultivated, in fact, they actually forced a lot of people in India to grow opium for them as part of a state monopoly that they created. The monopoly for, would force people to grow opium, and then they would take that sell it to China, and they would use the proceeds from those sales to buy the stuff that they wanted. Uh, again, the tea, the porcelain, the silk, etc. So that became the way that they were able to balance the books, so to speak, balance that balance of payments deficit that they had with China. And that, of course, led to some rather famous conflicts, uh, the first and second opium wars being the case in point. Uh, now you know why they happened. That is, that is, in effect, sort of the genesis of those conflicts. But uh, then after that, we kind of get into the modern period after that, when the Indian economy started to modernize under British rule and then uh, modernized further after independence. And I don't think there was much of any trading relationship at that point. <laughs> it, was, it had significantly depressed by that point. Uh, late 19th century, uh, early 20th century. Well, I guess the opium trade was still going pretty strong early 20th century. So opium was probably still the principal export there. Uh, although India also was still exporting cotton, so I'll, I'll make that note as well. They were still exporting cotton to China in the 19th century and early 20th century. But uh, after all the wars in China in the early 20th century, you know, the warlords period, the Chinese Civil War, World War II, uh, I think a lot of the economic activity that had been happening uh, fell off a cliff and didn't really recover and probably hasn't really recovered significantly since then. So I would say then that, uh, yeah, if you want a sort of quick and dirty summary of that uh, Indian Ocean trade between China and uh, India can be summarized in the classical period and medieval period as centering around uh, Chinese exports of silk porcelain and tea to India and Indian sales of cotton back to uh, China. For the most, that's a rough summary, and there's probably more to it. Again, it's something I need, I need to read more about, but that's my impression right now. And then after that period, during the period of uh, colonialism under the East India Company, the trade shifted to be defined by, uh, what was it? O well, opium being the principal case in point. Yeah, to kind of, uh, this is a point I missed, I guess. Back when the uh, back in the 1600s, the late 1600s, uh, European trading companies actually were already encountering the problem of uh, a shortage of liquidity in Europe, because all the coinage was going out of Europe to pay for stuff they were buying in India and China. So in that early stage of European uh, involvement in the Indian Ocean trade, uh, at that stage, 
one of the ways that they uh, devised to try to generate the funds that they needed to to continue uh, buying goods in the in the Indian Ocean was to get involved in the carry trade. Because before this point, European traders would come to India, buy their stuff, and then take it back to Europe, and that was about it. But, but as they became more deeply ingrained in the Indian Ocean trade they started to take on some of the traditional trade between different markets in Asia. So rather than just servicing the uh, route between India and Europe, they would start to take goods from India to, say, Southeast Asia. They would start taking them from China to India. They also participated in that uh, from India to the Middle East, uh, from India to the Southern Africa. Again, all the parts of the Indian Ocean trading network. And so they would, uh, by participating in those trades, by uh, carrying goods for a fee, if not also, you know, buying goods in one and selling goods in the other, they were able to raise more revenue and use that revenue to buy stuff from China and India. <clears throat> so that was the first solution to that problem of a shortage of coinage. Uh, later on, it shifted to be uh, taxation, again, the building of the British Empire in India, and then opium in the uh, early mid 1800s so i think that's uh that's about it that's about all i can remember i think and that's not I'm, again i'm sure there's more there's got to be more so i'm sure historians that uh i'm sure there are historians who could do way better than that and again it's still something i'm reading about but for now that's the best i can do and hopefully that's uh, a sufficient answer Let's see, 40 minutes, okay. I think that was the last question we had. I, could, I actually never asked you, Nero, was there anything that caught your eye in the news that you wanted to talk about? Man, if there was news that a person could find aside from COVID, they should get an award. Wow. Oh, that's you, let's give you an award. <laughs> <clears throat> Well, let's see what Look, we've got. We know got. you've seen 67 different graphs about the spread of COVID, but there's a new chart that I just did. It's pretty nice. Oh, yeah? Um, pretending to be a, a nice poster. Now, some of them are legit pretty cool. That's... It's interesting new data that's coming in. Hmm. <laughs> All the people who played that what is that game? There's a board game that's about that, where there's a disease that spreads and you have to Ooh, what was that? try to contain it somewhat. Yeah, I think I know what you mean. Contagion? So it's called? Pandemic? And Oh, maybe, maybe that's it. It's I think it was mentioned in an article I actually read not, re not that long ago. I'm not sure off the top of my head. Well, let's see what we've got here. Um, I had a brief update. I've actually got a couple brief updates, so maybe that's worth getting into. Uh, I had an update on the Afghan peace process. We talked about that last week. Uh, so the U.S. is now sufficiently upset at the Afghan government for being unable to solve their uh, election dispute that it's cutting $1 billion in aid. And it's the U.S. has further demanded that, uh, well, it's threatening further cuts in aid if the issue is not settled in the future. Uh, it's demanding that the dispute be resolved quickly. <clears throat> so this could escalate if uh, insufficient progress is made between Abdullah Abdullah and uh, Ashraf Ghani, you know, the two contenders for the presidency. Uh, 
that could be a big problem for Afghanistan since a lot of the economy is dependent on foreign aid of one sort or another. I think they'll probably come to an agreement before it comes to any kind of economic recession or anything like that. But uh, for now, the U.S. is kind of showing its impatience with this issue. You know, we're in the middle of peace talks with the Taliban, which is a sensitive period. And these guys here are arguing over uh, who gets to be president after the election. It's uh, it's not great timing. So the U.S. is doing uh, applying some pressure here. I'm sure there's got to be more kind of under happening behind the scenes, so to speak, uh, pressure that's not happening overtly. Uh, well, yeah, covert pressure, so to speak. But the overt pressure that is being brought to bear uh, is coming in the form of this billion-dollar aid cut. We'll see what happens with that. That's a developing story. Uh, that is to say the peace process is a developing story. Let's see. And then the other one was that I thought this was interesting. It's not really an update per se, but it was something weird that, uh, that happened. The U.S. government is apparently pushing Saudi Arabia to end its price war with Russia. Uh, that is to say over oil. I think we talked about this last week, too, where the Saudis and the Russians are having a price war uh, regard over with oil in the oil market uh, because the Saudis wanted the Russians to cut production uh, a lot more than the Russians were willing to in order to keep prices high. And because no agreement was made, the Saudis just came out and said, screw you, and then just <laughs> started pumping out loads of oil and giving buyers discounts. Like it's, it's a pretty clear message to Moscow. So uh, as a result, oil prices have crashed and that's not great for anybody who depends on oil production for their economy. And historically, uh, the United States has, well, the United States historically does have a history of producing a lot of oil. But over the past couple of decades, the, the U.S. has been more of an oil importer than an exporter. So ever since, let's say, the 60s, when I think uh, the U.S. became a net importer of oil, the U.S. has really been all for low oil prices. That's been very beneficial for the U.S. economy. And generally, when prices were really high, the U.S. government was pushing for low prices. So you would think then that the U.S. government would be happy about having low oil prices right now, especially given that the economy is struggling because of the coronavirus thing. But in point of fact, it seems to be pushing for the opposite. It seems to want higher oil prices, which I thought was very weird. Now, obviously, the answer to that, you know, the reason for that is uh, fracking. There's a, the U.S. has significantly increased uh, native production of oil in the United States. And uh, that comes from, you know, the refining of shale, you know, shale extraction. <clears throat> so because that's a major industry in the United States and, in, and an industry that produces a strategic asset that the United States wants and needs, it seems that the U.S. government is now prioritizing uh, higher oil prices uh, in order to float that industry, even though it means that uh, inputs for other important parts of the economy are going to suffer. You know, this kind of illustrates the problem uh, inherent in having in governing a large country with lots of different uh, economic focal points, so to speak. You know, there's lots of different regions in the United States and they all have different economic drivers and some of them conflict with each other. So, you know, Texas has historically been a major oil producer, so high oil prices have been good for us. But for a lot of the United States, like, say, the northeastern United States, there's a lot of manufacturers who use oil as an input. For them, uh, cheaper oil is much more beneficial. 
and high oil prices is very detrimental to their businesses. So if you're the U.S. government, how do you balance these different interests? Well, in general, uh, for much of the past, much of the late 20th century, that meant pushing for low oil prices. But now it seems that uh, fracking has changed the equation sufficiently that the U.S. government has changed tack, and that's a pretty significant historical change. And so that's, you know, again, it's pretty intuitive. It makes sense. But I think it's worth noting. This is kind of a milestone, so to speak, in the U.S. international strategy. Okay, what else did we have here? I had some stuff on Mozambique, but not much. Uh, FBI surveillance powers is probably going to take too long. There were before the whole virus thing became at issue. Uh, there were some FBI surveillance paper powers that were set to expire. And Congress dutifully uh, tried to renew them, but ended up getting hung up because a lot of people in Congress were not nearly so gung-ho about them. I've got a quick, well, it's not quick, but I have a detailed description of the way that uh, the politics involved played out, but we may save that for next week. Uh, I did want to try to squeeze in. Yeah, this is a thing that has gotten around. I caught it pretty early, but I haven't been able to talk about it. And I think now it's pretty well known in tech circles. Uh, this is a new bill that was introduced in the United States called the Eliminating Abuse and Rampant Neglect of Interactive Technologies Act of 2019. And as you can tell from the loaded title, <laughs> it has to do with regulating uh, technology, specifically internet companies. Now, the, the intention of the bill is to crack down on pedophilia on social media platforms. That's what it's supposed to do. The way that it does that is the controversial bit. And this is the thing that's got so many people upset. Now, as is, law in the United States stipulates that tech companies, you know, social media companies, for example, cannot be held liable for the activity uh, that their users engage in on their platform. So if, they, if somebody does something illegal on the social media platform, you can't sue the social media platform. You got to go after the individual responsible. Now, that's been the case for some decades now, but this bill would actually change that. Uh, what they're going to do is maintain the waiver for liability. That's going to stay, but there's going to be a condition added to it. And uh, the condition added to it is that the company has to adhere to quote unquote best practices. And if it does not, it, it if the government does not judge them to be adhering to quote unquote best practices, then their liability waiver will be lost and companies will be able to sue them for the activity, for the actions of their user base. So what are best practices then? Obviously that's going to be an important element. Well, the government doesn't actually know. The bill doesn't stipulate. It just says that it's going to be determined by a commission that will be comprised of the heads of agencies like the Department of Justice and the Department of Homeland Security and also 16 other, 16 other, other members from law enforcement, uh, survivors and victims services groups, and then also the tech industry. So a commission then comprised of these actors will be formed and they will define quote unquote best practices. And if your media company does not adhere to those, uh, you will it will be made possible uh, for companies to sue you for uh, user activity. So the concern here is pretty obvious. 
Uh, the concern here is that the commission will impose unreasonable or biased requirements. Uh, it'll define best practices in a way that will be deleterious to the business, uh, to the bottom line of the businesses. So that could be a problem. The other big problem, and this is the bigger one that I've seen talked about a lot more, the fear over encryption, uh, specifically that best practices will be defined such that uh, social media companies will not be able to use end-to-end uh, -end encryption in their services uh, and that anybody who does use them will therefore not be in compliance and then will lose their liability waiver. So that could be a big deal. That's why when it's been talked about on, say, Reddit, which a lot of people listening have probably seen, it's talked about in the terms of the death of encryption. You know, they're going to end encryption. They're trying to sneak in a ban on end-to-end -end encryption. Uh, and that is something that the government has been trying to do, especially national security institutions don't like end-to-end uh, -end encryption. And they've been trying to find ways uh, to force companies to introduce a quote-unquote backdoor of one kind or another or otherwise water down encryption usage. Uh, this is seen as a kind of sneaky way of doing that uh, since they could, again, again, don't know why I said it twice, uh, national security institutions will have representation on the commission and in turn, they will have a voice and they could use that to try to uh, implement their preference, which would be to water down or ban uh, the usage of end-to-end -end encryption, hence the concern. So that is a credible, legitimate concern there. Uh, another problem with this is that it uh, could be a political tool used to target potential political opponents in the tech industry. So, you know, whatever government is in power or whoever is in the commission anyway, if they have somebody in the tech sector they don't like, they could go after them by noting some core aspect of their business and banning that in the best practices definition. And so that could for put the company in question in a very awkward position. So those are three problems with the legislation in question and why uh, it has why it is so controversial. It hasn't passed yet, but it is kind of moving through the process. So we'll see. Keep your eye on that. That's definitely going to be a big deal if it passes. We've already had some uh, legislation kind of like that that passed, I think, last year or maybe in 2018. That was the one that had to do with banning uh, websites like FrontPage or Backpage.com. Uh, in effect, it had to do with uh, sex workers using uh, those websites to advertise their services uh, in an effort to crack down on pedophilia. Again, they basically banned that. You know, you can't have uh, users on a website advertising for sexual services of one kind or another, and that's done to deal with human trafficking. Uh, but then the downside was that uh, people who are basically honest people working in the sex industry lost their main uh, source of advertising. And it also put uh, companies that had, you know, forums and message boards and whatnot of the awkward position of having to police, uh, having to judge whether or not users were advertising, uh, well, basically prostitution or kind of advertising sex work of one kind or another. So in a similar vein, this bill takes a similar kind of a broad uh, hammer approach, you know, to try to deal with the problem. It's uh, taking a mallet to a simple problem that they, that, there's a more finessed way of doing it probably that they could be doing, but they're not because they don't really understand what they're doing most likely. I don't think it's any stretch to say that a lot of people in government are not really familiar with uh, the tech sector in particular, if not the broader economy in general. So that's a quick update there. That's something that you'll probably see yourself, Neuro, <laughs> as it develops if you haven't already.
using a sledgehammer to take care of a fly that's buzzing around. Thank you. <laughs> that's that's it couldn't it was like on the tip of my tongue, but I just couldn't remember what exactly it was. Yes, thank you. For people who don't know, that would be dangerous and troublesome because you could potentially smash your kitchen and not get the fly. So let's see, I think we actually did get some more uh, questions. So, okay, let me squeeze in one more before I get back to the questions. Because this is something that I think could be a major news item later this year. So this has to do with uh, Iran's nuclear deal, uh, the nuclear deal with Iran, rather. Uh, this is the deal by which uh, different countries uh, agree to maintain trade ties and not ap apply sanctions in exchange for the Iranian government complying with certain uh, investigative procedures and whatnot, allowing their nuclear program to be investigated to make sure that they're not actually developing a nuclear weapon. So since the um, Soleimani drama uh, a couple, I guess, months ago now, <clears throat> that was when the Iranian general was assassinated back in January, uh, the Iranian government started enriching more uranium. That was part of their retaliation. Uh, but that was actually one further step in a series of steps the Iranian government has taken towards enriching further uranium uh, that have occurred since the U.S. formally pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal uh, in summer of last year, I think it was. So they've been mostly adhering to the deal, but they've been edging away from it over time in response to various U.S. provocations. And uh, in particular, since November 2019, uh, Iran has tripled its stockpile of enriched uranium to 1,020 kilograms, uh, which is in violation of the 2015 accord. Uh, they, as is, they would only need 30 kilograms more to have enough to start producing 90% enriched uranium, which is the amount that would be needed for to build a nuclear weapon. Now, that's been the case since November. Uh, since then, things haven't been getting any better. And the IAEA, which is the international institution responsible uh, for enforcing non-proliferation uh, rules of one sort or another. Uh, they're reporting that Iran has failed to cooperate with investigations at three sites of interest. Uh, they wanted to know whether natural uranium was used at one of the sites. At another site, there had been activities, quote-unquote, consistent with efforts to sanitize part of the location, end quote. And uh, apparently last year, I'm reading my notes basically, last year uh, inspectors detected uranium particles of man-made origin in Tehran's Cherkozabad district. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. Uh, they detected some uranium particles at a site near Tehran, let's say, of man-made origin. And the Iranian government said it was from a carpet cleaning factory. Uh, the director has demanded that Iran provide clarification on that story. So that's another example there of uh, the, Iranian, the Iranian government being in non-compliance. So obviously the worry here is, uh, and I'll just, I'll just use the quote here from the director of the IAEA, there is the possibility of nuclear activities and material that are not under international supervision and about which we know not the origin or the intent. So this illustrates that uh, the Iranian government is not in compliance with the nuclear deal officially. And that's been the case for a while. Again, you know, this goes back to November 2019. And in general, the other members of the nuclear deal uh, have been willing to give the Iranian government some slack to give them time to respond to criticisms and requests for more information. But the more time that goes by without a satisfactory 
without a satisfactory response from the Iranian government, um, the more suspicious, uh, the more suspicion there is that they're actually up to something. Now, we're still in the early stages of that. This doesn't necessarily mean that they're making a nuclear breakout, which is one of the big uh, fears vis-a-vis the nuclear deal. Uh, for those of you not familiar with the term nuclear breakout, um, one of the one of the aspects of the negotiation around uh, Iran's nuclear program and the uh, deal that was made to try to contain it is that uh, Iran could at any point during the deal, since they were allowed to maintain their nuclear program, uh, although not their nuclear weapons program, if they had one, that's a debate in and of itself. But given that they were allowed to maintain their nuclear facilities and whatnot, they could hypothetically, if they want to make a mad dash uh, in the development of a nuclear weapon, you know, they could dedicate a bunch of resources and then try to secretly for as long as possible push development and maybe have that done within a year or two. You know, the exact amount of time I think is called the nuclear breakout time, nuclear breakout period. And just how much time they would actually need if they tried to do that is unclear. But the fear uh, here, you know, this the relevant aspect here is that uh, there are, there's more evidence now that Iran might be getting ready to do that if it isn't already. And uh, if that's the case, that's really going to bring the, nu- the efficacy of the nuclear deal into question. Uh, that is to say, whether or not the different other powers involved, Russia, India, China, etc., will actually stay in the deal and whether they won't have to impose sanctions again uh, because the, the Iran government does that. Again, they've been pretty lenient so far, so probably won't be any sanctions in the medium uh, term, you know, over the next couple months. Uh, but if further evidence surfaces that Iran actually is uh, moving towards a nuclear breakout, and especially if evidence emerges that they are doing a nuclear breakout, uh, in those cases, they'll pretty much have to. And there would also be the problem at that point of what to do about the fact that the Iranian government is trying to get a nuclear weapon like explicitly. And that raises lots of difficult uh, foreign policy questions for the United States as well as the rest of the world. You know, that would really test how committed the world is to nuclear nonproliferation. So this is a story that's still developing. This is something that we only have early evidence on. And maybe it comes to nothing. You know, maybe the Iranian government has good excuses for all of this. And, you know, even if they are preparing for a nuclear breakout, maybe they're not they're not really going to do it. Maybe they're just sending signals that they're thinking about doing it to try to scare the United States into giving concessions and to scare other parties of the nuclear deal into giving further concessions on their part as well, in which case, not necessarily a problem. But hypothetically, this could be the prep for a nuclear breakout, in which case the Middle East will get very interesting again, uh, not too long from now, probably later this year, I would expect. So something to watch, an important something to watch. What did you say their excuse was? Cleaning carpets? Uh, that was the that was the Iranian government's uh, excuse. That was what they argued. They said that uh, what was it? But let me see if I can find it again here. Uh, yeah. So they said the the IAEA said that they had detected uranium particles of man made origin uh, in Tehran in a district in Tehran. And uh, the Iranian government said that, oh, yeah, that's just a carpet cleaning factory. How clean are the carpets getting here? (laughs) Yeah, see, I don't know anything about carpet cleaning or carpet cleaning factories or if there even even is such a thing. 
So I, I can't really say for sure that there would be no uranium involved. We joked about this with the Space Force, <laughs> and we talked about some of the rules regarding uh, what you can do in space, and we learned that you cannot militarize space, and then I suggested, well, what if you just had a very, very effective drill? It's just some mining equipment. Yeah. Oh, yeah, but that can blow up the planet. Yeah, but it's also really good for mining. <laughs> That's enriched uranium. You can make bombs out of that. Yeah, but we're just getting carpets really, really clean. Oh, okay. We'll carry on then. Yeah, I'm not sure why they even used that excuse. And that it makes me think that it makes me wonder if there isn't something involved in carpet cleaning that involves uranium particles, but that just seems really unlikely. But I just don't know enough about it to actually say that. So I can't really commit. I trust chat. Do we have any carpet cleaners who can help us with yeah. this? Yeah, yeah. somebody in chat fill us in on this. Okay, so more questions. Uh, what were the political fallouts from the Spanish flu? Is it similar to what's going on now? No. And the thing with the Spanish flu is that it happened during World War One, And so obviously uh, the Spanish flu was hugely destructive, but because it happened during World War One. It was not really in the headlines much. It wasn't. It was kind of underreported for a while. Uh, once it hit critical mass, and you know, lots of people started dying, then it was reported on. But even then, the main news item was the huge ass war in Europe. So World War One and the politics thereof ended up sort of uh, subsid, subsiding, subjugating. Let's say uh, the politics of World War One ended up subjugating uh, the politics any politics that might have uh, occurred relating to the Spanish flu. So for that reason, I don't think they're really similar. You know, we don't really have a whole lot going on now in international affairs. There's obviously the trade war and uh, all the conflicts in the Middle East, but those are pretty much in standby mode. You know, those, those have the equilibria there and haven't changed much. And so they're still more or less predict predictable. So as a result, the global pandemic kind of dominates headlines. It's uh, it's easily the the biggest thing happening right now, and in turn, politics are being affected correspondingly. So I think that's the that's the key difference there. What are my thoughts on the future of cryptocurrencies? Oh man, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I say, I think we've got some videos from 2018 on that. <laughs> Yeah, we had a lot of questions on cryptocurrencies way back when they were doing really well in uh, like 2017, 2018. And so uh, I don't think, let me see if I can remember what I said back then. Um, I don't think that they have too much of a future, really. I think the underlying blockchain technology is going to be of use. I think we'll start seeing more of that adopted in different ways. But actual cryptocurrencies... I'm pretty skeptical. I don't, I don't think that they're going to supplant traditional currencies or uh, et cetera, what have you. I know that people, some people, well, I know that the people who like them like them specifically because banks are not involved and that they're outside the financial sector. But uh, I suspect that in so much as the underlying blockchain technology is useful, traditional banking institutions will use it uh, and then will probably maintain their hold on the financial sector. They'll take the bits that are useful and then they'll capitalize on the fact that they have a lot of trust amongst the public. Obviously not the people who like cryptocurrencies, but the broader public in general still still trusts established financial institutions not to steal their money, at least not too much. 
So for that reason, I don't think cryptocurrencies are going to be a big game changer. I think it's still going to be a pretty niche phenomena that's restricted to people who are either laundering money for one reason or another, crime will be an element, but also people who just don't trust established institutions and want to use something that's outside that frame of reference. Let's see, I'm curious about the estimated cases versus confirmed cases of COVID-19 regarding mortality rate. The news seems to be reporting estimated cases for season flu and their mortality formula, making the death rate 0.1%, but on the CDC website, the confirmed cases of season flu compared to the death rate makes it more like 7 to 10% death rate, whereas they don't whereas they don't have estimated rates yet of COVID-19 infections, so they use confirmed cases only, and that makes the death rate for COVID roughly 2 to 5% in a comment. Yes, um, the mortality rate, uh, the actual number, you know, the single number is probably not accurate for, you know, any, any of those cases. You know, the one... 0.1% is wrong, 7 to 10% is wrong, 2 to 5% is wrong. We don't really have enough data to estimate the actual mortality rate. And I actually read an article that got into this in detail, and I posted it on my Twitter, I think last week. I don't quite remember exactly, but it was a pretty in-depth look at uh, the statistics involved. It, it wasn't about statistics. It was about public policy, but in so much as statistics were relevant, it kind of delved into that. So we don't really have the data we need to calculate mortality rate because we don't know how many people are infected. Because people, for one, there are people who are infected, but asymptotic, asymptomatic. Uh, they don't show symptoms. So those people don't really generally know they're infected. And so they don't report it. Uh, and then there are people who do know they have it, who they do show symptoms. Uh, but then they don't report it. You know, they just stay home. It doesn't affect them that much. You know, I think Neuro, you're an example of that. You know, you had, you had it, but it didn't affect you too much. So you just kind of stayed at home. So as a result, we don't have numbers for those people. The only people we do have numbers for are the people who actually come to a hospital and either get tested and test positive or people who are critical and need emergency support. So those are the people we have numbers for. And obviously, uh, those people are disproportionately older people and immunocompromised people and other vulnerable people, uh, the people who just really need uh, medical support. Those people are obviously disproportionately likely uh, to die of the virus. And as a result, if you only look at the numbers we have, then uh, the mortality rate is inflated as a result. So that's, that's why the present numbers are not really accurate and why the mortality rate is probably less than what is being reported. And using seasonal flu as a basis has no bearing. That's It's apples and oranges, pretty much. Obviously, seasonal flu has similarities with COVID-19, but uh, you know, it's a new virus, and we're still kind of learning about it and how infectious it is. Obviously, it's highly infectious, but getting exact numbers would be needed to really pin down a mortality rate. So uh, mortality rates in media are probably not the most reliable. They're generally media reports uh, use estimates, just rough estimates based off of what information we have from other countries, what information we have from the CDC, et cetera. So don't, I wouldn't worry too much about it. You know, if, if the gist of the question is that you're worried about the death rates being reported in the media, I wouldn't worry about it too much. The actual mortality rate uh, is probably like maybe 1%. You know, in the article I read, that's what they were kind of suggesting. It's probably somewhere in there. 
somewhere between like uh, 0.5 to 1, I think it was. That's a guess. So don't assume that's obvious. Don't, don't take that to the bank, so to speak. Uh, but from what I read, that's likely. That seems likely. Uh, higher death rates and mortality. That's another aspect that's important here. Uh, the actual mortality rate is an aggregate. It's going to differ if you filter by a subgroup. So, you know, if you look at the mortality rate for uh, elderly people, that's going to be different than the mortality rate for people in their 20s. Uh, so there's going to be a lot of variance there. And then there was some other element to that I'm forgetting. Oh, right. Um, an outbreak in a place where uh, there is sufficient uh, patients who are hospitalized because of the virus in such a locality, uh, it may be that local healthcare institutions are overwhelmed. If that's the case, then they're going to have to engage in tri triage, triage, I forget how to pronounce it. Triage. Triage, thank you. Uh, in that case, they'll have to engage in triage and basically ration medical supplies. In such cases, the mortality rate is going to be higher just because there's not enough medical supplies. So there's also going to be variance in mortality rate according to geography. There's going to be a spatial element because some areas will be able to handle it better than others. And in turn, uh, some other areas will have higher mortality rates than others. So that's something else to keep in mind. Sometimes you might hear a number and think, oh, well, that's really high. That's a really high mortality rate. But it might be for some specific region that's particularly hard hit that doesn't have the necessary healthcare care uh, institutions or medical supplies necessary to treat people appropriately as necessary. So for such a place, they would have a higher mortality rate just for that reason. So I guess that's, uh, that's what I can remember. I hope that's sufficient. Uh, it's just a rough description of where the numbers are coming from. Let's see, there have been reports, next question, there have been reports that Chinese cell companies lost 21 million subscribers during the pandemic. Any insights into why? Cell company, like phone companies? Is that what that means? I'm not super up to date on the latest tech stuff, so I don't know, uh, I might be missing what a cell company is. Yeah, I don't, I guess regardless though, I don't know. <laughs> I guess regardless, the answer is the same. I'm not sure. Uh, I'm, I haven't heard that. So that's a new one for me. I guess that's something I should write down so I can look into that. Let's see. China phone subscriber fall. If I had to guess, I would just say, if it's phones anyway, I would guess that it just has to do with the fact that people's incomes have been affected. You know, if, uh, if you get laid off and you don't have any income and you expect not to have any income for a while, it makes sense to cut costs where you can. And it may be that... Uh, subscriptions were cut correspondingly. But that's just a sheer guess on my part. I'll try to read about that. Oh, it is phones. Okay, thank you, Mass Neotech. Yeah, that's the best guess I would give. I guess I would ask if there's any alternative theories out there. Let's see, you, so, you said that the law was up for quote-unquote renewal. If they didn't ban encryption in the past under the law, what makes it seem like they will now? Let's see. The Well, encryption is being threatened by the new bill, and that's not up for renewal. Uh, the law that was up for renewal was the FBI surveillance powers, which is a separate issue. That didn't have to do with encryption. 
So the new bill is not up for, I apologize for the, if there's whatever confusion there was there, I may have mixed topics there. The FBI surveillance bill is up for renewal. The FBI surveillance powers anyway are up for renewal. And that was one stage of political drama that I kind of skipped over. I just briefly summarized it. Uh, And then I talked about um, that bill. It had a, I can't remember the name. It was too long. I think it, earn it. I think the acronym was earn it. Uh, the earn it bill, which is new and is not renewing anything. There's nothing up for renewal in that bill. Uh, that's a totally new bill that would implement uh, new laws. That would be a new law. Okay, so that's all of the questions then. And I think we're, where are we? Two hours, 53. Okay, so that's seven yeah. minutes. So we can uh, we could probably cut it there because I don't I could try to squeeze something in, but I don't want to go too. Much. Well, what was the what was the outcome of the last? Because we actually went over a little bit last time. So was that did that end up being a problem or what was the uh, no. what was the feedback there? No, I think that was fine. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a amount that I think was set by the original account before I had a membership with the site. Oh. And- and I think three hours is good, just so we have yeah. consideration. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, but we can go a little over if necessary. Yes. Cool. Okay. The servers will not catch fire with too much content. <laughs> cool. This audio file is far too large, sire. It won't fit on our servers. What do you mean, man? We've got great, huge servers. No, you don't understand. They went over three hours in a podcast. Holy shit! <laughs> We're doomed. Ah, well, I'm glad the servers will be able to handle us. Yeah. Okay, so let's, I think I'll squeeze, I'll try to squeeze in two more uh, shorter ones. One of these has to do with the assassination attempt in Europe. Uh, This happened a month or two ago, so this this is a little bit old. Uh, This has to do with Ramzan Kadirov, who is the governor, I think it's governor, governor of Chechnya, which is a... uh, autonomous republic within Russia. Now, some of you may remember the Chechen wars in the 90s when Chechnya tried to break away from Russia and Russia had to fight a war uh, to maintain its, you know, to keep it, basically. And it was a very nasty war. And the outcome of it is that one of the major rebel leaders uh, was co-opted. In effect, the deal made was that Kadyrov uh, would be made the head of the province and could run it how he liked. And he could, you know, bring along all of his revolutionary, you know, all of his rebels that were in his group would be able to join him, basically, under him in the administration. In exchange, Kadyrov would declare loyalty, in effect, to Moscow and would help them uh, fight other rebels. And that ended up being a pretty successful model. And the war basically ended with that as the status quo in Chechnya. Now, since then, Kadyrov uh, was killed, actually. I think he was assassinated somewhat dramatically by a bomb that was planted in a stadium while it was being constructed, if I'm remembering correctly. Maybe we've got some Russians who can clarify that for me. Uh, but he was assassinated, and so his son, Ramzan, I, I, I apologize if I'm mispronouncing his name, uh, his son, Ramzan Kadyrov, uh, ended up taking up his role as head of Chechnya. And since then, uh, Kadyrov has been pretty consistent with how he uses force Uh, to intimidate dissidents, not only within Chechnya, but also occasionally uh, within Russia broadly. Uh, 
Uh, every so often there's assassin, uh, an assassination somewhere in Russia, and it almost always is linked to Chechens. And the suspicion is that Kadyrov himself is directing that, as opposed to the Russian government, which is sometimes implicitly assumed by observers outside Russia. Maybe it is the Russian government acting through Kadyrov, but at the very least, uh, Kadyrov himself seems to be at the center of it. I can't prove that. Nobody can. Uh, but that's the suspicion anyway. So this is relevant because there's been, over the past couple months, a string of assassination attempts at targeting dissidents, uh, generally those uh, with some relationship to Chechnya, either Chechens themselves, Chechen dissidents, or Russian reporters who have at one time or another reported on Chechnya or the Kadyrov administration. So let's see, I've got the list here. Uh, one of them is an exile, a Chechen exile named uh, Zelim Khan Kengajvili. And he was killed last August. Uh, he was killed by way of a headshot from behind in a park. And then there was a blogger named Imran Aliyev. He was killed a couple weeks ago in February 2020. He was found dead in Lille, France. And then the last, oh, the blogger, by the way, was Chechen. Uh, there was another blogger named Tumso. I'm going to try my best with these names. Tumso uh, Abdurakamanov. And he was, uh, well, there was an attempt to kill him. This was the most recent one. In late February 2020, there was an attempt to murder him by an assailant who tried to kill him with a hammer. Uh, as it happened, and this is actually a pretty wild story, um, this blogger was actually able to fight the assailant and incapacitate him until the police arrived. And uh, he actually asked the guy, you know, why are you doing this? Why are you trying to murder me? And uh, he gave a somewhat ominous answer. He actually said, and this is a quote, they have my mother. Now that's yeah. a quick summary of the assassinations and the assassination, the assassination attempt that's been happening recently. And these assassinations tend to come in pretty long intervals. It's not like there's constantly assassinations happening in Russia, but for whatever reason, these Chechen linked assassinations happen in groups and this is the latest cluster. Hmm, that's spooky. Well, with that ominous answer that he gave, it maybe implies that other assassinations were done in a similar manner where they just get someone who's not really involved. That could be. And they a dire situation where they feel like they have to. And if that person gets caught, then they're a lot less likely to uh, be punished for it. That could be, yeah. Generally... Yeah. Shot in the park was probably from an expert, though. <laughs> that could be some. Uh, clearly, you, as you can see, some of the assassins are better at their jobs than others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think uh, in Russia they've actually arrested people for some of the assassinations. I think the high-profile one was that uh, liberal politician who was assassinated a year or two ago. I, his, I can't remember his name. It was like Nevsky or something that started with an N. Uh, he was assassinated and they actually did arrest some some of the people that were allegedly involved and they were all Chechens and they all said that they were patsies, that they were kind of set up. Now, obviously that could just be a lie, uh, but it also is consistent uh, with the idea that maybe these people are being coerced into assassinating these people. So that's a snapshot there of assassination in Russia and it's relevant to Chechnya. I think uh, maybe I went too long on that three minutes on the dot. Okay. So uh, 
If you like, I can add one more here about posturing gone wrong in Brazil. Sure. So this is uh, political posturing, which we've talked about quite a bit. You know, politicians will do things or say things for no other reason than to be seen doing or saying them, just to score some cheap political points. And this went very badly awry in Brazil, I guess a couple months ago. This is probably an old story now. And if we have any Brazilians listening, please correct me on this if I get any of the details wrong. I think we've got a few. Uh, there's a state in Brazil called Sierra, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. But uh, let's go with that for now. Uh, in Sierra State, the police are actually on strike. They're protesting for better pay. And it's actually illegal for police to strike in Brazil. And not only is it illegal, it's actually unconstitutional. The Brazilian constitution has in it a clause that forbids police from going on strike uh, like these police are doing. And the courts have ruled against them correspondingly, but the strikes have been ongoing since last year anyway. Now, there's a senator named uh, Ciro Gomez, a former presidential candidate, actually, and the current governor of Sierra province. And he decides that he wants to organize a counter-protest. So he goes to a police station that's being blockaded by uh, strikers and protesters, uh, all of them police. And he goes there with a crowd and a bulldozer. And he gets in the bulldozer with the idea that he's going to push through uh, the strike line to try to open up the police station. Uh, purely a symbolic effort, since even if he can get to the police station, there's no police inside of it because they're all on strike. Uh, but he wants to try to send a message here. So he gets in his bulldozer and he makes like he's going to charge this crowd of policemen. Now, the trouble with charging a crowd of policemen is that a lot of them tend to have guns. And so, as you can probably guess, when he starts towards this line of policemen, some of them start shooting into the cab of the bulldozer. And Mr. Gomez ends up getting shot and has to go to the hospital. Now, he doesn't die, as far as I know, and I think he's okay. I haven't heard anything uh, to, to the contrary anyway. But uh, his little publicity stunt did not go as planned, suffice to say. Wow. When you posture and someone actually is ready to box with you, <laughs> hmm, you get punched. Ouch. That hurt. You punched me. You were about to bulldoze us. <laughs> Well, let that be a lesson to any aspiring politicians we have listening. Don't try to bulldoze your constituent, constituents, okay? That's not <laughs> a good strategy. You want to get votes? Find another route. Afraid so. Afraid so. Well, thank you again for having me. It's been fun, as always, and much appreciated. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much for giving us some facts to take the edge off the mass hysteria and panic that is being experienced <laughs> by many people around the world. Hope you stay safe, wash your hands, and take care of yourself. Thank you, Moss Neotech, for handling the questions and all the lovely people in the chat for providing them. Yep, thank we you all. We'll see you on the next episode of World Discussion with Agent Smith. Smith, Smith.